ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Hi, this is Michael Bay, and welcome to the Criterion edition of Armageddon. Why is there a Criterion edition of Armageddon? Well, I think this movie took me a year and a half of my life, and I'd like to show you some of the pains that I went through, as well as the pain that 2,700 other people, some of the finest craftsmen in Hollywood, went through to try to bring this movie to the screen. Making films is like a war, and any movie that ever gets to the screen, it's like you've won a war. It's just not a glorious business. It's glorious when it gets to the screen. That's what it's all about. When an audience sits there in a dark room, because that's why we do it. So I wanted to create a shot that really took you into the movie. It was very important to explain the devastation of what an asteroid can do to planet Earth. And to try to give the audience some knowledge and, and set up how the dinosaurs were wiped out, or NASA firmly believes the dinosaurs were wiped out by a six-mile-long asteroid that hit down in the Yucatan. Now, this shot here, narrated by Charlton Heston. Why Charlton Heston? Well, he's got a very cool voice, and uh, I think it plays off uh, some of his performances in one of the famous movies he's done. This shot right here is a total CG shot. Um, when you see it on movie theater screen, it's, it's got amazing detail. Um, going around and the planets and, and the 3D dimensions of the of the fire burning and the clouds off the uh, the Earth, the horizon glow, which which you see in that very kind of halation right there. You kind of see a 3D halation. It will happen again. It's just a question of when. I was struck by these these space books that showed pictures of Earth where you get this amazing blue glow, which astronauts say is the, the most striking thing about being in space, is this amazing blue glow. There was a writer working on this sequence. He actually begged me to rewrite the script, and he re rewrote 53 pages in two days, and I read the script, and it was pure shit. He's a very young writer. We paid him a very minimal fee and I did it because he loved movies and he just wanted to work with me for two weeks so he proceeded to rewrite Armageddon. I read the first five pages and I told him I walked out of the movie theater. Um, I didn't even you know finish my popcorn. Uh, I said you've got to grab the audience by the balls. He then took this phone call very hard and he came back later that day and he pitched me this 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 opening where we blow up the shuttle. And this movie had always started with, uh, with astronauts um, in space fixing a satellite. But his little twist was to blow up the shuttle. And I thought there was an amazing connection between Billy Bob, who is the head of mission control, being the first person at NASA to physically lose somebody in space. It made it more of a personal mission for Billy Bob. So I thought it was a really brilliant idea. In meeting with the people at NASA, I realized that they're simple guys, they're extremely smart, they're very Americana guys. 
NASA's not slick in any way. I mean, it basically, it smells like the tubes from your mom's old TV set she had in the 50s. I'm dead serious. The old Mission Control is the most unsexy place you've ever seen, and you cannot believe that they actually landed a guy on the moon there. What I wanted to do with NASA, because everyone feels NASA, they've done these studies, if there were a problem in the world, where would you go? There was a huge corporation that did this study, and 70% said NASA. What I tried to do with NASA was to sexy it up, to think the best and the brightest are going to be at this facility. And in reality, they do have the best and the brightest, but the equipment is, seems antiquated. But the best and the brightest look very much like Billy Bob. I mean, these are the people that I met at NASA. And they're mathematicians, they're scientists, they're, they're slight. I mean, the astronauts you saw, they're not studly. They're little guys. You know, they're not the, the guys you saw in the movie The Right Stuff. Astronauts are just, they're scientists. Hi, I'm Jerry Bruckheimer. I'm one of the producers of Armageddon. There was a whole section of the picture in the beginning where a, a group of kids spotted the asteroid. And um, then they were arrested by the government and put in jail. And I, I just felt it was completely wrong for the movie. It was not what the movie was about. I didn't believe it as audience. I didn't believe the kids could sit there and find this thing. I don't think an audience would believe it, even though it could happen that way. We all know that. And that's where we kind of got this guy who was a, a caretaker of a, a huge telescope. And he's the one who sat up there and found it. And, that's how we started. But it was a character that served his purpose in the first act of the movie, and you didn't want to drag him through the whole movie. And I felt that those kids would eventually be cut out of the movie anyway, so why go shoot them? And so that's one of the things we changed. And we changed the whole structure and excitement. Uh, Tony Gilroy came in and did some great work in, in restructuring the beginning of the movie. It made it much more exciting. We did have a lot to accomplish in the beginning of the movie. We needed to educate the audience what an asteroid can do to the world, how devastating it could be, how to tell them that this is like an atomic bomb striking times 10,000. Something that I learned in The Rock where we use the poison gas in the very beginning of the movie to show how deadly just one little pellet could be. It was something that always stuck in the audience's mind, and it was a great technique to show the devastation. So that's why we chose to do a small precursor strike on New York City, uh, Finland. Uh, people think when they see the movie sometimes that we only struck big cities, and that's not the case. If you listen to the track, you'll notice that we say that we've struck uh, many different places around the world. So New York is a great, is a great visual city to, to strike, and there I wanted to make a little joke of uh, Godzilla. Uh, this was a dog trained specifically to kill do Godzilla dolls, and he was shipped in from New York City at the price of $20,000, and he really did rip the shit out of those dolls. Um, we had to actually hold a cardboard box up so that Frankie the dog would not see these dolls. And it was us and Godzilla. Uh, unfortunately, Godzilla didn't perform the way it was expected to perform at the box office, which initially, I think, hurt us. Uh, because I think the you know the press kind of generally felt well here's this this big monster just fell even though it, it's a successful picture uh, let's go get Armageddon uh, so uh, that's the danger of of setting yourself up as being a huge blockbuster going in into the summer uh, but you know we're all big boys and we got big chests and, and big backs and we can handle the arrows and knives and daggers they're going to throw at you uh, in which they do. You never kill a dog. You must learn that as a filmmaker. Never, ever kill a dog or kids. It's just a rule. Somebody dial 911. My screen's full. They're 
plane. Bogies are breaching the atmosphere from Finland down the North American seaboard. These effects right here were on car flippers, and we had TVs that were shooting through the window at high rates of speed. And uh, um, this was basically being a kid in a candy store, deciding you can flip and blow up whatever you want. And we had to come up with ideas how to do things in daylight, which is very tricky in uh, effects-driven movies, because you've got to be very critical on your effects. A lot of effects movies are done at night, where it's easier to disguise things. We had small basketball-sized space rocks coming in. It wouldn't just blow and throw a car. It would level city blocks. That's how fast these things come in at 30,000 miles an hour. Here in the Grand Central Station, I had Rob Legato, who did Titanic, do these shots. This was a model that was 16 feet wide, and uh, there were photographs of Grand Central Station with green screen people. and. Uh, um, there were a lot of very dangerous stunts done here, and these are people around flying cars, and uh, we invented a flipper system that was quite accurate, and I was able to put people very, in very close proximity to these cars. And uh, we shot this New York sequence literally in four days, and that's quite a bit of shooting. I've always been a fast shooting director, and this is a model shot of the Chrysler building falling towards us with people coming towards us. and. Uh, major digital work done on that shot with model work. I'm the type of director who doesn't like effects and that's why I was on on these effects guys from day one of try to make this as believable and as real as possible. You know, I think sometimes bad effects really take you out of the movie. That's why we did a lot of physical effects in the New York section. Physical effects are things that have real fire, real explosions, cars flipping and flying through the air. So after we educate the audience of how devastating these things can be if they were to get through the atmosphere and hit pieces of the city, we then try to educate the audience that amateurs are the ones that find these things mostly because NASA doesn't have enough money to search for these global killers in the sky. Uh, it's a weird fact, but it's a very, very true fact. Sir, I'm retired Navy. I know all about classified. But one more thing. The person that finds her gets the namer, right? Yeah, yes, that's right. That's right. I want to name her Dottie after my wife. She's a vicious, life-sucking bitch from which there is no escape. Let's, that's sweet, Carl. STI, this is flight director. I want to get now, the crew, they wanted me to do this shot. I practiced that chair move ten times. They could have given me a lot of grief on that, but apparently we had a rap party in Florida, so they wanted to get out of there, so I didn't get as much grief as I should have gotten. Um, boy, was I a little nervous doing that, being in front of the camera. Here is the anomaly at 1658. Presidents of movies are bad, I think. I mean, you look at uh, Contact, and they had Clinton. That actually took you out of the movie because you were amazed at how did they get Clinton in the movie, and they did it digitally. Because um, when I was in the audience, I saw everyone snicker. So you try to lessen the president, and you try to see him on monitors, and try to just make him a presence and not really see him. I don't like presidents in movies. The only president I've liked is Harrison Ford. I actually did see Deep Impact. I was invited, believe it or not, to the premiere, which is at Paramount, and God, it seemed like everyone was looking at me. Jeffrey Katzenberg, Sherry Lansing. I went out of the movie feeling, wow, this is a way, way, way different movie. I wish Mimi lead her luck, and I, I'm, the choices that she made are very different than mine. And I felt the core of Armageddon would appeal more to the masses than Deep Impact. And I'm sure Deep Impact ate into some of our business, 
because most people don't want to see two asteroid movies, but they're just very different movies. We have 18 days before it hits Earth. Bruce Willis. This is kind of my humor, playing golf, hitting golf balls. Figuring out where you are, you realize you're in the South China Seas, and lo and behold, you're hitting a golf ball onto a Greenpeace boat. The only reason why Greenpeace was there, it's because they have a huge glutton of a ship that, it, that sucks up so much oil, and they're there protesting drilling in the sea, when in fact, they actually need that gas to get out to protest this uh, uh, oil rig. Bruce Willis's intro actually got a lot of cheers when I saw it at many various theaters uh, when he came up on the screen. You know, I just found out something interesting. Number two chewed 180 feet last night. Who do we have to thank for this? This is uh, Bruce Willis play uh, Harry Stamper. When I climb up that staircase to go into this little, what was called the crow's nest in the film to play this scene, I stepped off of the real oil rig and ran up a staircase on a oil refining plant, I believe it was, down in Carson, California. Hi, I'm Ben Affleck. This is where I first come into the movie. The scene was shot in a little oil platform in uh, Los Angeles, not out in the sea. You can do whatever comes into that little AJ idiot in my Bruce added the idiot part of that line. I had to loop almost the entire scene because these steam things that you see in the background inexplicably spewing steam were on this audio for my line, so I had to loop it all, which was kind of a drag. Mike always liked that I'm a little edgy. It's so brief, and it, it goes to show you that Bay pays attention to like the littlest, tiniest things. I don't think anyone who saw the movie noticed that I'm a little edgy line, but every time I see Michael, he's like, Hey, you doing it? You edgy? <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. That's the, my little impromptu addition. It's an homage to Tootsie, where uh, Dustin often says, When confronted, my mind's a blank. The relationship between Bruce and Ben at first was a little tense. Everyone was trying to feel their way, and uh, ended up Bruce and Ben became very good friends. It was intimidating initially, you know, it was the guy from Die Hard. And Bruce was actually a really, really nice guy. He liked hanging out with everybody. He made all the actors feel comfortable. He could have been really intimidating and difficult, but instead he was just, uh, it was, you know, sweet. He was, he's a regular, sort of regular guy, guy's guy, and just, uh, I had a lot of fun. He was really, really nice, you know, and uh, he was really cool. For 30 years, I questioned the need for NASA. Today, we're going to give them the answer. This oil rigged where we shot off the coast of Galveston, 125 miles off the coast. We helicoptered in every day. The crew stayed there for four days. And it's extremely rare to ever be able to, allowed to be shooting on an oil rig that's active. Uh, these rigs are worth $400 million. They're extremely sophisticated. They're dangerous. Because we were, we were having oil drillers save the world, we somehow were able to convince uh, some very nice people to let us use their rig. An interesting location. We had to fly uh, roughly two and a half hours each way every day to get back and forth to the oil rig unless you chose to spend the night there, which a couple of the actors did, but most people flew back and forth every day. It was interesting. It was, I, I'd never been on an oil rig 
Never had any call to be on an oil rig. This is all like there's this little tiny pissant oil place down like in Long Beach, and that's where we shot some of the stuff. But then any anytime you can see water is a, a rig shot. Cuts together pretty seamlessly, I have to say, for something that I thought would look like total hokum. These movies like this where the people are sort of yelling and a lot of these gags, all this stuff ends up being largely ad-lib. I and mean, Michael would say, like, just, okay, Ben, get in your underwear and get at the top of the tower and just sit. Look, this is me. This is actually me. Ready? Watch. Look, see, that's me. He would say, uh, just say some stuff and yell and, like, you know, right here. I had him work out. We paid for a set of $20,000 of pearly white teeth. Ben's going to hate that story. Uh, I always like low shots that kind of come right under your chin, just make you a little bit heroic. And he kind of had these baby teeth. So uh, I told Jerry Bruckheimer, I said, God, he's got these baby teeth, Jerry. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Jerry used a very famous star in a plane movie that he replaced teeth with. So uh, uh, he said, we did it to him. Why not do it to Ben? So my dentist had Ben sitting in a dentist chair for a week, eight hours a day. Anyway, this is where the uh, country feller uh, tells all the NASA boys some good old down-home uh, NASA science logic. Now take a look at this here asteroid there. Mm. Well, I reckon that there asteroid's coming to hit us. Mm. Mm. Yep, I suppose so. The president was a particularly cool man and didn't pay my employees much of a wage. Mm. Can you see it? Sling NASA? What? Mm. I'll hit you with that dark eyes or blade. Mm. This is where you just have a random helicopter in the background for no real reason, just because you're a big movie and you're expensive and you can. But you have no idea how much of a headache having a helicopter in the background causes because it's all, you know, safety this and money that and so many hours they can fly and they're on the walkies and the wind's blasting everywhere and... If I hadn't brought it up, you'd have probably forgot about that yellow helicopter in the background by now. I may be an immature father, okay, but I'm still your employer. And as your boss, I want you on that crew boat tonight and back in the office by Monday. You got that? Okay. I quit. John Hensley, when he spoke to me about oil drillers, he had this idea of Red Adair. Now, Red Adair, if you know, he's, he's I think he's somewhat older right now, but he is the world's foremost man in charge of putting out oil fires. And if you know anything about oil fires, they burn for years and years and years. After the war in the Gulf, we had these oil fields that were burning for years, and Red actually had to go in there with his team, and they used explosions that they put in the middle of these fires to try to suck out the fire. And Red Adair is just kind of this maverick guy, and we wanted Harry Stamper to be this kind of Red Adair. We're making Harry Stamper as a guy who is drilled around the world in places where they said no one can ever drill here. He's a man who has invented drill bits, has invented drilling devices, and, and he's a simple guy. Just like Bruce Willis's character is in most movies. He's a simple, everyday guy that's very smart, and Harry Stamper is one of the best oil drillers in the world. And when, when I called around about oil drillers and learned a lot about them, there are about five, six guys around the world that are called the best, and that's it. You know, I kind of come from a working class background, guys who work with their hands and 
really got to where they are with, you know, not a lot of education. It's not really dependent upon college degrees a lot of times compared to working in a law profession or, you know, the medical field or something like that. It's, it's, it's much more about instinctual knowledge and knowledge that you gain on the job. My character in the film, he says that everything that I've learned about drilling holes in the earth comes from actually doing the work. At the time when I read the first script, there were still chunks of it that were left to be filled in. It wasn't done, and it was continually being worked on and continually being rewritten as we were shooting. You have to get your lead. In this case, it was Bruce Willis. And when we talked about the story, he saw that, A, we got his character, and we, we knew we had to embellish it and make it better. And, and um, he understood that, that this was a work in progress and he could work with us. And um, we listened to his suggestions. He had some great suggestions that, that we added to the movie. We drill. We bring in the world's best deep core driller. Have you ever noticed how everyone in all these movies they always have to be the best? He's the smartest man in the world. Bruce Willis is the best deep core driller. I didn't know they rated deep core drillers. You know what I mean? Like, if you went around and asked somebody, like, who's the best? Who's the best deep core driller? You know what I mean? Like, I'm the best espresso maker there is in Manhattan. How do you know? Who's keeping track of these things? This sequence was a nightmare to shoot. This is they, they actually decided to have all this stuff spewing out and spraying and oil all over the place. Stunt acting is always fun to watch. Whoa! Whoa! My stuntman, Terry Jackson, was almost killed on this film. He was hit in the head with a big piece of pipe. The only thing that saved his life was the fact that he had a hard hat on. Look, slow motion, that was my, you know, indoctrination to, like, Michael Badum, you know what I mean? I, he was like, you just jump off the thing, it's in slow motion, and the explosions are behind you. And I thought, well, I've arrived. A lot of times I really was upstage by what was going on around me, I felt. Bruce read one of the drafts and, you know, wanted to meet with us. Michael was smart enough to bring all his storyboard and his, and his drawings of the characters and the spacesuits and the asteroid and all the stuff that he'd created with the various artists. And, you know, Bruce took a look at all that stuff and said, my God, this is a big movie. Harry Stamper is a very accomplished man. He's a very accomplished businessman, a rough, rugged entrepreneur who's made a lot of money. And unfortunately, he got married when he was 18 years old. This is backstory that we had in the script that was taken out. He got married when he was 18 years old because a woman he slept with had a kid, and somehow she dropped this kid, this little girl, off at his door. And he did the right thing by raising her. So Bruce, in his main struggle, in his arc of a character, he's got family issues to overcome. He's got um, this entire mission is done for his daughter, Grace. And we built this entire movie for this one moment when he passes. He's done everything for the love of his daughter. And um, I think it's a very interesting idea just to have a, a father who's really trying to do the right thing by doing this, this crazy oil drilling around the world. These guys travel all around the world and him trying to raise a daughter in this crazy environment. At NASA here, we try to sexy it up. This is not a building. This is actually, this building sells uh, herbal products. Um, if you saw the real NASA, you just wouldn't trust it as far as you can throw it. It looks very much like an old 60s, 50s uh, kind of school. 
uh, I was very unimpressed when I went to NASA. Uh, just in terms of just the look and the lack of design. Um, but I was also very impressed with just the intelligent people that I met there and the systems that they're doing. And I remember talking to people that were living in a habitat for three months. They recycled their piss and drank it as water and, uh, you know, they were watching The Rock that night. They would get videos and that's all their contact with the world. They can, they can talk to you on a video screen, but that's what they do for four months. They have to live in a habitat to show how space uh, survival is going to be in a space station. So we tried to give NASA a look in our mission control that was stately and something that you would think. What I think I was going, I was creating a NASA that would, what would my perception of NASA be if these were the best and the brightest? Well, actually, this is as real as it gets. And I really liked the idea that, that Billy Bob was telling him this, this horrific nightmare. And right in that very office, they open the blinds and it's happening right below them and mission control down below. The Bruce Willis character was not written for anybody specific. It was written, I was thinking possibly like a Sean Connery. Bruce was always in my mind, but I'm thinking, oh, he's not available. Maybe he's a little too young for the part. And then I met real oil drillers, and they were right around Bruce's age. The only problem with having Bruce is we had to, we had to age Bruce slightly, and we had to make the backstory happen when Bruce was about 18, when he had this daughter. But um, I think Bruce was a great choice for this, because he's got that everyday man quality. That's the thing that makes this movie fun. It's, it's the everyday guy given the opportunity to save the world or just sit back and watch it end. That's what makes this movie fun and entertaining. And let's face it, this isn't brain surgery, this movie. This is pure entertainment. I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers. And he told me to shut, shut, shut the fuck up. So that, that was the end of that talk. He was like, you know, Ben, just shut up, okay? You know, this is a real plan, all right? I was like, you mean it's a real plan at NASA to train oil drillers? He was like, just shut your mouth. <laughs> See, here's where we demonstrate that, because Bruce is going to tell the guys that they did a bad job of building the drill tank. He did a piss. See, he's a salt-of-the-earth guy. And the NASA nerdonauts don't, uh, don't understand uh, his salt-of-the-earth ways, his rough-and-tumble ways. Like, somehow they can build rocket ships, but they don't understand, like, what makes a good tranny. We've had been training for eight months solid now. Eight whole months? Well, pretty much, yeah. Like, eight whole months? As if that's not enough time to learn how to drill a hole. But in a week, we're going to learn how to be astronauts. Oh, one whole week? Now you know how to fly into space? I need my guys. Why do you need them? They're the best. Everyone's the best. Why are they the best? I don't know. They just are. I'm only the best because I work with the best. If you don't trust the men you're working with, you're as good as dead. You want to send these boys into space? Fine. I'm sure they'll make good astronauts. But they don't know jack about drilling. I mean, this is a little bit of a logic stretch, let's face it. They don't know jack about drilling. How hard can it be? Aim the drill at the ground and turn it on. 
You think it's just drilling a hole? There's a lot you gotta know about. And when you're gonna brick snap off an edge in a tranny on a corner of a hot pipe, and you're gonna get a gas pocket. Like, yeah, well, what about when the booster rockets don't fire, and your EVA suit, and your zero gravity, you know? Didn't you see it? Didn't you see Apollo 13, boy? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. There was some criticism that I made NASA look dumb in certain places. In fact, uh, if you heard some of these asteroid uh, theories of what they are thinking of doing, uh, it just sounds asinine if they were to have a real global killer coming. It's just NASA doesn't spend a lot of time and they don't have a lot of money to work on uh, devices that can stop these global killers, but they have a lot of crazy theories. And drilling into an asteroid is, is a real theory that they've got. As a kid, those are my heroes, the guys that were on the moon. I mean, I grew up with the Vietnam War as a kid, seeing the body count, thinking I'm going to have to go to war, and then I had the astronauts. And that's one of the things that really inspired me to do this movie. No, Mrs. Curleen, it's Harry Stamper. You see Bear, you tell him Harry's looking for him. The notion of the ensemble, I mean, it, the, the, the ensemble element of the movie, you know, is from the, the sort of Dirty Dozen model, you know what I mean? A gang of sort of rough-and-tumble everyday guys like that are needed to do a job. It was a nice change for me working with, a, with an ensemble cast like we had in Armageddon, a couple actors I've worked with before, and a bunch of new actors that I, that I uh, got to meet and work with and become friends with in this film. All really funny guys. Uh, my strongest memory of now after, I guess, six, eight months after we shot the film was how much we laughed every day and just try to keep cracking each other up. Uh, you might want to start with every bar in New Orleans. That is a big, shiny mouth. You know, it's still Bruce's the star, and it's Bruce's movie, but uh, more, more so than most of these movies, they went against type in a, in a sense that they did try to at least have kind of limited storylines for each of the few main ensemble players, you know, uh, Steve Buscemi's character, Will Patton's character, uh, Mike Von Duncan's character, my character, you know, um, Owen's got stuff, you know what I mean? To, to try to develop a thing where you care about a bunch of people and sort of uh, hold your interest. That dice shot was a rip-off shot that I came up with with the Adrian Line uh, Indecent Proposal. I was hired for a week to do uh, second unit photography in Vegas, and I remember finding myself on a craps table with a little skateboard camera and a little uh, little mirror that was able to get my camera inches away from the from large overscale dice. You know, hey, if I invented it I'm, and I put it in Adrian's movie, I got to put it in my movie. Well, you know, being in business for yourself has its advantages. Make my own hours. Nobody shoots me in the leg. We had a lot to do every day. Um, there weren't any days where you said, "Oh, like today we have to do six setups." It wasn't like that. It was it was a lot of work every day. And they had already they had been shooting for a month by the time I got there. Big nuts, including the phrase "big nuts," was questionable because. Uh, no, it's PG-13, and if I were referring to big nuts as in big testicles, then that wouldn't be PG-13, but the argument was, was uh, posed and accepted that I could be talking about lug nuts, ostensibly. Five words. I want to hear from you right now. Those words are, you know, AJ, I really look up to you. Grease, you, you had to be constantly swathed in grease in this film. We were... 
people would come up in between takes and other movies they pat you down so you won't be shiny for some reason shiny is considered like the worst thing in this movie they were constantly wiping everyone with glycerin so that it would look like and it would just stick to your face it's like you know gelatinous gelatinous sugar but everyone's constantly slick looking throughout i guess you know that's the that's the look What's up, baby? Yeah, big man. What's up, what's up? Come on, come on. What's up, Harry? The NASA fine oil on your anus, man? <laughs> Everyone in this movie was easy to work with. There wasn't one bad apple in the whole bunch of actors. It was really a pleasant experience in that regard. And thank God, because it was eight months. You know, it's like Chinese water torture. Even one negative personality point can turn into a, you know, a hideous aggravation by the end of eight months. United States government just asked us to save the world. United States government just asked us to save the world. Bruce ad the that line, and Michael went, that's going to be in the preview. And lo and behold, it was. United States government just asked us to save the world. Bruce liked to say the phrase, the United States, the United States of America. That's the only time it ever got included in the film. Just because I think, you know, what other America, really, are you talking about? I mean, to say the full name seems a little bit extraneous. See, and with just the kind of obligatory reaction to like, ah, what a bummer. Worst parts of the Bible. This is a real preview moment. This is Bruce's first day. What about you? Amen. All right, then. We go. Steve Buscemi is a quiet guy. He'd always have the funniest jokes in the room, and they were very subtle, but he'd have everyone laughing. Now, this scene was really interesting. I actually came up with the line, no taxes ever, uh, because I remember paying a quarterly tax fee to the government right when we were doing the script, and I'm like, God, they take a lot of money from me. It's like they take half. So what better way to screw with the government than to uh, never pay taxes again? Um, this was a line that got cheers in all the audiences as I saw it with. Um, in creating the scene, we had a couple things. We had the parking ticket line, we had the no taxes line, we had the uh, two citizens, no question to ask. The rest was all improv. These pages right here, all these guys wrote down different things. What would you ask these guys? And the Kennedy thing was an improv thing. Uh, the staying at the White House was an improv thing. And it just sort of came out when we were shooting. I didn't know Bruce was going to say all these lines, but he's actually looking at the physical papers with these little lines written on there. Bring back eight-track tapes. Bruce was actually in a very funny mood this day. He pulled the joke on me when I walked in when we were shooting this scene. Uh, the entire crew knew that I was coming in, and Bruce goes, Where the fuck is that director? I'm on set, and he should fucking be here. Where the fuck? I'm out of here. I'm going back to Idaho. And I'm like, I was trying to slip in, like like seeing Bruce Willis freak out in, in front of the entire crew, and I'm sneaking in. I'm like, I was totally late, actually. I was like 10 minutes late. I'm like, Bruce, I've been here the whole time. What's the matter with you? The whole crew just started cracking up. It was the best joke Bruce ever pulled on me. Harry. Yeah, one more thing. Um, none of them want to pay taxes again. Ever. Bruce is a big no taxes kind of guy, so that was close to his heart. You know he's Republican. You know that. Is that for Mr. Red? 
Now this is total improv. This is the way I like to work sometimes. This line's totally improv. I like setting up a scenario and uh, and just playing with it. I mean, right here, Owen Wilson, who's a great, he's a great new up-and-coming kid who I found in Bottle Rocket. Um, you know, I just put him by this, this thing, and he just started playing with those things, and I'm like, that's great. And uh, it's just so wrong for someone to be saving the world, and he's playing with these medical equipment. This is where I take some of my commercial background and improving with different real people that I've worked with and uh, just creating these scenarios and... Uh, you know, the audience has really responded to those things because when they're, they're doing the medical testing, there's not much you can do. You write down medical testing, and, and you don't know what's going to be funny, so you just try to set up with all the funny little props you have. And uh, We had the setting, and then I let these actors go. And I like casting actors that are, have a very good improv skill, and um, I'm a director who shoots fast, and, and I learned on Bad Boys, working with two improv actors and not having much of a script, and for certain scenes where you're doing comedy, I think improv is sometimes the best way. I think he's sort of the John Huston school. They asked John Huston, you know, how do you get good performances? And he said, hire good actors. Michael expects you to show up and do the work, you know. He will afford you the freedom to improvise. He'll do long takes. You know, he'll roll for five minutes, and you can just talk and do stuff. And one or two lines of that will end up in the movie. But that's really all he needs. Our psychiatrist who was evaluating, I wanted someone who was creepy. And I met Udo on a commercial, and he has the best eyes, and he's just such a weird guy, and he's a really talented actor, and he's just totally creepy. Um, but a great guy, and I just thought, this is perfect. So I begged him to do this little, little bit part, and, um, you know, we had a lot of fun with it. And he's another actor who loves to improv. Woman with large breasts. That whacked out room, the set, was my idea, and uh, my line producer, Jimmy, kept saying, well, we can shoot it in the corner of here, or we can go to our, we can use this surgery room, we can do it here, we got these cool lights, and I'm like, no, you know what, I, I, I just, I keep seeing these spikes, if we can have these spikes, I know it's bizarre, but I need a room of spikes, and it was a big debate, because, well, we can't afford the set, and I'm like, let's just make it cheap, let's just make a three-walled set with spikes, and somehow, after being the type of director who just kind of, no, I don't want to shoot it in the corner, I don't want to, you, sometimes you got to whine a little bit and like kind of wishy-washy, and you sometimes get your way, and on this one, it got my way, I got my way with this uh, weird room, and I think the room just was was funny and, and off, and uh, we've all seen these sound chamber rooms before, and we just kind of took it to the ninth degree. Personally, I don't know how they survived the tests. It's an amazing job being a director and working on a film and getting to take your vision that's been in your brain stewing in there for six, seven, eight months, and then you start to shoot it, and then a year and a half later, you've got a movie. For me, it was kind of interesting because it's like I've never actually wanted to do a space movie. And to think when I finally see it all put together, it's like, wow, I've just created another world, and this is really a cool thing. I mean, I remember the very first time I saw the first rough cut with four editors and Jerry, and they said, Michael, how the hell did you keep all this, this stuff in your head? Because I don't think anyone knew what the full movie would be like except for me. That, by the way, is the largest open-air building in the world. They have to keep the air conditioning on full-time. Otherwise, clouds will form in, this, in the roof of the building, and it will rain inside. NASA's full of, like, bizarre kind of 
geophysical things like that. We're like, you know, if, if we didn't keep the AC on, it'd rain in here. <laughs> you mean you're a rocket scientist? That's right, son. And Halsey will supervise the nuclear ordinance. Anyway, I just thought you guys should meet. When we got the first tour of, of Houston, um, I saw where they did this weightless simulation, and it's one of the largest pools in the world. And everything they do in space, they practice in this pool. They bring in fiberglass mock-ups, and they do every single step that they're going to do in space, and they time themselves, and they have 30 divers in there supervising maybe three, four astronauts so they make sure that they don't move, use any muscles to kick off or push themselves so they, they they have a true weightless environment going in there I said this is the coolest place we have to shoot here they go we don't shoot here this is the neutral buoyancy tank we just don't do that and I'm like but we've got to no one's ever seen this it's never been shot before and they go well that's just not going to happen so NASA was very standoffish at first and the more we ingratiated ourselves the more, I guess, firepower we got from going very high up at the Air Force, the door started to open. I mean, that footage is pretty phenomenal. These, these planes are pretty incredible. And look at that. That's real, you know. It's not CGI. It's not modeled. It's not matted. That's the really the way they fly. This is the part of the movie that was the most incredible to me. It's being around the truly incredible things that are pushing the envelope of science and technology. My mother always wanted me to have a real job. I sent her a still of me doing some welding there. She was very proud. I don't know, Oscar. Who do you think you are? Han Solo. Yeah. If anybody's anybody, I'm Han. And Owen, who's awesome too. I love Bottle Rocket, his movie, and he and I hit it off really well. We became kind of friends. We ended up coming up with the idea for that little scene about, you know, comparing ourselves to Star Wars characters, which got included in the film later. Here is the vacuum chamber at NASA. They obviously wouldn't be doing this in the vacuum chamber, but uh, I'd rather not stage this in a classroom and I'd rather stage this in a vacuum chamber. They actually could be in their spacesuits in this vacuum chamber. Vacuum chamber simulates space. They don't simulate zero gravity, but they simulate no oxygen. And what they do in this chamber is they test satellites in there and they heat it up with one side and they freeze it on the other side just so you get the idea of what it is to be in deep space that cold and just having sunlight on one side you know the most important thing we had to do is get government clearance and that was you know of course very difficult and it's enormous amount of just talking to both the defense department and the air force and then the people at nasa and it's a whole process you go through and we started that immediately uh, met with them and, and told them what we're going to do and and I, I think they, they liked the story. It made NASA look good. Uh, we had a meeting with the Air Force, and um, they gave us a number of suggestions that they felt would um, grease the wheels to get the approval. Some of them we agreed with, some of them we didn't. It was a kind of a contentious at the end of it that I wasn't going to yield on certain things uh, as far as what they wanted to do because, you know, we're here to entertain audiences, and we know what works at a certain place and what works for characterization. In the end, they agreed with it, and when they saw the movie, they stood up and applauded. So it all it worked out great for everybody. And the fact that we worked on Top Gun in the past and certainly didn't hurt the Navy's reputation, they felt that we weren't going to do anything to hurt NASA's reputation. And what we did is we hired one of their top astronauts, ex-astronaut Joe Allen, and an ex-future thinker for them, Ivan Becky, and they worked with us on the script, and they added the verisimilitude that made NASA very comfortable. They don't want 
their employees to be characterized as anything but what they do. They're professional, they're smart, and they get the job done. And that's how they want to be portrayed, which is accurate. I reckon these hair airplanes will take off and go around the moon here. Mm. I reckon my mama liked what Jesse Dixon was doing to her. Oh, what? No, no. Yeah, I remember this one. It's where the, uh, the coyote sat his ass down in a slingshot and he strapped himself to an Acme rocket. Is that, is that what we're doing here? There's the often heard but never seen in actual practice um, theory about slingshotting, using planets to speed you up somehow. I'm not sure how that exactly works, but it's become kind of part of the vernacular. So you can just say, well, we'll be slingshotting around the moon, and everybody nods as if, like, oh, yeah, well, of course you will. The debris will be cleared by the moon's gravity, and you'll land right here. That's it. We've got separate landing sites for each team, softest parts of the rock as we can figure. At NASA, we don't take chances. We double up on everything. First team that hits 800 feet wins. Now, this rock is big, it's dense, it's got some gravity. You can walk around, but use your thrusters so you can work easier. Okay, now, this, was, this line was added after we did some test screenings about gravity, because people, believe it or not, they have their own theories on gravity. And I watched a lot of space movies, and you kind of have to set up the rules for your audience of what your space is going to be like um, because you can't leave it up to the audience because everyone's got a different theory about gravity, relativity, um, oxygen in space, this in space. Uh, it's bizarre what people think about outer space. That's how little knowledge there is out there. So we explain the rules in this movie that our asteroid is is very massive and it does have its own mass, which means and it also is spinning, which gives it a semblance of gravity. It's just like the moon. Game's over. Paul, this is Houston Here's the original mission control. This room was in use two years ago, and this is a room that smells like your mom's bad TV sets with the tubes. It looks so archaic, and computers look like they're 20 years old, and it still sends shuttle missions out there, and uh, they have updated it. Here in the Saturn V rocket engines, we had to get the Smithsonian to uh, grant us permission to have a couple making out. I'm sure they've never gotten this request before. Never mind how we climbed up in there. It's not important, and you don't need to know about it. We just got up in the rocket thing, okay? Meanwhile, while shooting this sort of sensual erotic scene, we were constantly on the verge of falling 15, 20 feet to our deaths. So we had various, like, spotters underneath us, which kind of took away some of the romance. I chose those scenes, most of Ben's scenes, to kind of get up and go get something to eat when I was watching the movie. I would, I'd come back and see if I was on the screen, and then I'd sit down. But, yeah, I, apparently there's some kind of love story going on in the movie between Ben and Liv. Yeah. Just kidding. Liv was the biggest struggle to get her in the picture. I, I felt that after seeing the picture she did with Tom Hanks, she was an enormous star and had such honesty in her performance and um, such emotion in her face that I really wanted her to do this picture and we offered it two or five times before she committed uh, and I think what helped her commit to the picture was uh, the cast that was getting assembled while she was you know being courted uh, and by getting Billy Bob and, and Ben and Bruce and, and a lot of actors that she respected uh, and kind of drew her into the process that she saw we weren't just going to make a, a shoot 'em up we were looking for really quality actors that would would help her and surround her with people that 
that you have to really be on the top of your game to act with. And also, you know, I made her try to make her feel comfortable that scenes that she was uncomfortable with, that she was in, that we tried to get rewritten, which we did. Robert Town came in and worked on a, a scene for her and, and made it much better. And we added that Scott Rosenberg came in on the Animal Cracker scene and wrote that for her and for Ben. So we, we brought in the best talent that money can buy uh, to give these actors words and emotion that they could play on screen, and that's so important. So here's our armadillo. We built this vehicle. It's 18 feet wide. It is 21 feet long. It's a Humvee chassis. It can actually drive 35 miles an hour. It was an amazing piece of equipment to build because the, the front wheels can turn and the back wheels can turn so that it can kind of crab in a way. And uh, we spent about a million dollars inventing this vehicle and uh, it never broke down on us. It was done by John Frazier, who was, who was our physical effects supervisor. He's the man who, who did the physical effects on Twister, inventing the jet engines with the huge windstorms. Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck were the first civilians ever to be in spacesuits, those $2 million spacesuits, to go underwater in that tank. And uh, we had 20 minutes with, with Bruce and 20 minutes with Ben, and it was pretty amazing with 30 divers and... Uh, um, I mean, I felt like a flight air traffic controller um, directing where it was totally quiet up top and I had everyone down below. I'm saying Bruce and Ben only got to go in the tank. Now, what you're seeing here is you're seeing Big Mike, you're seeing Steve Buscemi, you're seeing Owen Wilson, you're seeing all these guys in the tank. But what it is, it's a very crude aquarium with some bubbles blowing in front of their face. I mean, if you would have seen how we shot this, you would have seen it looked like a bad student film. And it fits in so perfectly uh, by shooting these real astronauts that are really under the water on video. See, these are real astronauts right in there, if you look very closely. And that's Ben right there. The others were, were on stage in front of a 100-gallon fish tank with someone blowing bubbles and one camera and me yelling through a, uh, a speaker system. Before I could go in the suit and in the lab, we had to do uh, Hydrox which is special kind of air diving training. So, because um, you're breathing a hydrogen air mixture. And you had to be certified in that. And then we, I went through several days of fittings with the suit where the suit had to be fitted to my exact, you know, like they measure your pinky to the, you know, eighth of an inch. Literally, like, an, and from each joint on your pinky. I mean, it has to fit perfectly. And uh, that was days and days and days. And then we went, then we went decompressed in a practice chamber. And then uh, they just put me in the suit there and dropped me in. <laughs> I was kind of... See, that's a real headset. It looks kind of nerdy, like Michael wouldn't have designed that, but that's actually the one they use in space, so he couldn't really replace it. But the suit's pretty cool. I mean, it's heavy. It's really heavy when you're, you know, in gravity. But it's, it was cool to wear it. That's a potentially huge security risk. What if they talk? Working at NASA was not only for me, but for everybody who worked down there. I think it really brought out a very patriotic feeling that NASA and the government let us play with some of their biggest toys and, and, and shoot on and around space shuttles and, and, and rockets. And it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, it was a lot like being a kid. The reason you make films about people that you'll never be in places you'll never go is because it gives you an opportunity to be them for a while in your life. We made 
Armageddon. We're hanging with Joe Allen, who's a famous astronaut. We're walking around NASA. We're standing on the gantry of the shuttle that's going to take off in two weeks. We're sticking our head in the white room. We get to live their lives for, for a year or so. It was great to be a fighter pilot, you know, to, to land on a carrier and hang with all the top guns. And we made Beverly Hills Cop, we hang with all these cops and went on runs with them and went on arrests with them. And, and I think you give that to an audience. I, I think of the pictures that we make as process movies. Armageddon's a process movie. Bruce Willis is trained to be an astronaut during that movie. You're on that ride with Bruce Willis. You're becoming an astronaut. Top Gun, you became a fighter jock. You were Maverick. You became Tom Cruise for a moment in time. BMW product placement. Hmm. You know what? You sometimes, when you do such an expensive movie, you need to do some of these things where you have commerce and art meet. And, uh, you know... Uh, we use a Tag Heuer uh, big clock, and uh, I put that little Tag logo there, and it saved me $75,000. So that's $75,000 I would have used to make that very cool clock I put into making, like, my very cool psych set, you know? And uh, I think if you insert these things, you can insert them smartly, you can save production money, and it really does help. I mean, I don't care that they were in a BMW. Okay, maybe it's not right for the character. Michael told Liv that he, he's like, I can make your stomach look really good, okay? I've done a lot of these things. I know how to make stomachs look good. So just lie down. Just don't worry about it. I shed a lot of sexy stuff. <laughs> this was a scene that was written by Scott Rosenberg about animal crackers that I think was in the original version of Beautiful Girls, although I don't know, was cut out. It was added near the end of the movie when they had a rough assembly and they realized that they were sort of missing the love story element. And um, they wanted to include that. The Australian bit is my addition. I figured it was justified because we traveled all over the world, so then, you know, he would have been around some Australians. And The presence of the love story, as Billy Bob said to me, you know, he was like, you know, this movie was going to be about me and Bruce until that Titanic come out, and then they thought that love story was what, you know, did it for him, then you ended up being in a picture. You was going to be an extra. You do know that, don't you? But there's probably some truth in that. I think they, they wanted to concentrate on the love story with the success of Titanic. They thought, oh, it's the kids like the love stories, you know? Yeah, well, they were concerned that, you know, Billy and I couldn't carry off the film, so they, they wanted to get a little love story going. And I'm sure that, you know, romance has its place in a story about the end of the world, but while we were shooting the film, Michael continually reminded Ben that there was a strong possibility that his entire part may be cut out of the film. So there, there was a little, there was some concern there, I think on Ben's part. I think this movie benefits from all these really good actors like Will Patton, who, who, given only a little tiny bit of stuff to do, really make kind of the most of it. And You know, you watch Will, and all of a sudden you believe him. That's his kid and his wife, and you don't need a whole lot of time devoted to it. He's just really good. I mean, uh, working with guys like this helped me understand how important it is to like just have good actors, and that good acting means so much to a movie. One of the challenges of a movie like this is to figure out how to sort of compete with the background and the scope of the movie and the scale of the movie and all the histrionics, visual histrionics that are going on. And, um, you know, you don't want to be too big because then you'll just look like you're sort of overacting amongst all this stuff. It's important to try to understand how your performance is going to complement that because that doesn't make a movie by itself, you know, although sometimes I think Michael would 
rather just make movies without actors. But, but no, he likes actors, and he understands how they sort of fit in and augment the story. But that's something that you have to, to get an understanding of. It was kind of funny. We went into a house in Pasadena where Bruce Willis's father lived, which is a scene that's cut out of the movie that's in the director's cut now. And uh, the owners of the house were saying, well, you should watch our floors and be careful. And I'm like, ah, you don't need to be worried about this crew. We've been working around $19 billion worth of stuff. We're okay. My dad is a, was also an oil rig driller, and I learned everything about oil drilling from him. He's retired. It's just a very touching little scene. It's just about me saying goodbye to him. Because I, there's a possibility inferred that none of us may come back from the asteroid. So a few of the different characters in the film have their their last night on Earth, and my character's choice was to go and see his father. We had a lot more film footage than, than we had time for in a theatrical release in a, in a theater where they want to get a certain number of showings out every day. So I, I understand it, and, and it happens. I mean, sometimes huge chunks of films come out because of the time and the actual marketing of it, the business side of show business. But I'm happy to see that it's back in. No, it's not a requirement in these movies to have a strip club. It is not a requirement, okay? Don't think that a Jerry Bruckheimer requires another strip club in the scene. If I were ever to own a strip club, I guess this is what it would look like. This is the old L.A. theater. It's one of the, the what they call the, the, the old theaters designed in the 30s, the movie palaces, and we converted it into the strip club. Strip club just kind of felt right for Steve Buscemi. You know, when I work on a movie, I, I envision the entire movie in my head. I mean, I play music, and I write, and I draw, and... Uh, and then, you know, when you're making a movie, there are things that become better. There are things that, that you didn't envision. You know, you work with actors, and they improv things, and they give you ideas. And the amazing thing about movies are that movies take a life of their own, I think, when you shoot. This night out scene was one of our tortured things that we were working with in the edit room. Problem is, it's a hard thing. I've got a, I've got a movie that's an ensemble movie, but I'm trying to show the arcs of a lot of characters, and it's a really tough thing. Um, it's something I really struggled with, and I don't know if I even got it right. What's wonderful about the work on this movie is every time you look at it, you see something new and different that you hadn't seen before. And even as I look at this now, I see things that, that I'll miss, you know, and look at it again and, and see new and interesting things. And I've seen it maybe 75 times. When I really thought about Shanghai, I thought to myself, I could do this all in miniature, and I can just have a little boat and uh, a father and a kid, and um, I don't need a big set. Well, unfortunately, because so much stuff was going on at the very end of the movie, we, we rented the largest soundstage in Hollywood, which was Stage 30 at Sony, that has a lake. They filled the lake. They built a 90-foot pier, all right, with a 90-foot set, which you're seeing right here, splashing, um, with certain boats and whatnot. It was a massive set, so... I'm like, oh my God, did we waste all this money? They said, well, it was always in the budget, and we had a design, and I never thought they were going to go through with it. They wanted to shoot it earlier than I wanted to. So I'm like, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's just blow it up. So we spent a day shooting there, and we blew it up. I liked all my scenes working with Billy Bob. He's a really talented actor and a very, very funny guy. 
Billy Bob grounded the movie. I think his 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 no nonsense attitude. He brought the realism into the movie. And I thought Billy Bob was a great idea because he was someone who, as he always likes to say, he loves to screw himself up. He always likes to shoot himself fucked up in some way. And uh, I thought it would be a great opportunity for Billy Bob, and he did too. I mean, he was really drawn to the script. He said it was a real page-turner. And, of course, he called me up and he says, he says, okay, I'll do the role if I could wear a leg brace. I'm like, okay, that's a good idea. Kind of had to. Boy, I wanted to go up there. Look at that little chin there. See, we both have that little mid-40s bag under our chins. Not should remember not to be shot in profile as much. That could be the lighting. I should probably talk to John Schwartzman about that. Now, this scene, there was something I really liked that got cut out, which I'm putting back in the director's cut for this edition. It's basically the two warriors admitting that they're both scared from this angle, right from the back. I think to have a hero that's humble and scared is a great idea, and somehow it was a fight that I lost. Jerry thought it was redundant information, and it was sort of an issue for time. There are certain fights that I will fight, and that one I just lost, and uh, I never pushed it, but it's going back in this director's gut. We hung the armadillo, which is pretty amazing because it's a NASA clean room. It's funny, the armadillo was driving around NASA, the grounds at Florida, and people actually thought it was something that NASA developed. That was a really funny sight. This is a crawler here. It goes one mile an hour. It actually carries the shuttles out, and that was a fake model shuttle that's sitting on top of it where the image kind of melds in together. And those two shuttles sitting on the gantry are models that are six feet tall. This location where Liv and Bruce are is Apollo 1. This is where we lost our first astronauts when they flicked a switch. The switch set off an oxygen fire where the entire capsule caught on fire and the rocket blew up. This is kind of a memorial left to them. They really haven't done much with this site. And uh, the Air Force owns this land, and so we did this scene right under this Apollo 1 site. I don't think many people know where it is. I just thought it was such a great location. And uh, this plaque that you're actually going to see, it really kind of foreshadows what's going to happen to Bruce. And he's a man that's going to be lost at the end of the movie, and he's standing now right on, under Apollo 1. One of the challenges for Liv was just to be the only uh, estrogen component in a highly charged testosterone atmosphere. And uh, she just did a great job. And her presence is so sweet and endearing. And she's so um, natural and accessible that it, without her, it would have been a lesser movie. And, you know, she kind of struggled with it. But eventually, this sort of dynamic developed where the older guys felt the kind of paternalistic, protective attitude towards her. And, uh, you know, she had, a, she had a tough time getting used to it, but once she did, she was just, she's wonderful. I can't imagine working in a film where I would be the only guy working with 25 women. So she had a lot to deal with every day. The president will be addressing the nation and all of you personally within the hour. Here's where the movie starts to get serious, and we've got the vacuum chamber. 
where I found this. This is another vacuum chamber that I found. This is not how they get dressed. They do get dressed in a clean room, but the clean room's just a little too ugly. This is a little more of a stylized way. Um, what you're seeing here, the helicopters, is something they really do do. They have SWAT teams that fly along with astronauts convoying out. For some reason, they're worried about terrorists. The scene between Ben and Liv was a scene where we shot it t two ways. We shot it with Ben saying goodbye to Liv, and then we shot it also with the scene where Ben is singing, leaving on a jet plane. The writer, Scott Rosenberg, said, this scene will bring the house down or it will suck the big one. That was the words that were on the script. This scene was, again, a Scott Rosenberg idea that I would sing, and it was one of those things that was highly questionable. Nobody knew if it would actually work and end up in the movie or end up on the cutting room floor, but I uh, always game to sort of make an idiot out of myself. I was willing to, to try it. Bruce said, this scene will never be in the movie. Well, I didn't know on the day. I mean, I, I think it's kind of cute in the film. I, I think that, it's, that, that it gets a laugh, so it, it certainly you know, deserves being in the film. But once you, once you turn the camera on and once you start shooting a film, it's like being in the middle of a forest and all you see are trees. And if you don't have a map, it's hard to have, have any sense of uh, objectivity about whether a scene's going to work in a film or not until you see it all cut together and see the scene that comes before it and the scene that follows it. But I, I thought that that scene was cute. I don't, I don't think Ben or, or, or Steve or Mike Duncan are, are very good singers. Uh, Kenny Campbell, I think, is a fairly good singer, but... Uh, they were all singing it in a different key. It took quite a bit of work to uh, fix it. Just kidding. This shot is one of my favorites. This sequence, I have to admit, gives me little goosebumps. I just think it's so cool and shot so dramatically, you know. I address you tonight not as the President of the United States, all this stuff was shot the summer before the movie of, like, the people around the country. Kind of looks like a Miller Genuine Draft commercial, but I really like those commercials. We shot these Americana bits, actually, in July. I went to Texas, and then when I went to France for the Cannes Film Festival, I actually went to uh, a couple places in France, and then I went to a place in Istanbul, Turkey, and uh, we shot some other images to help fill out the world look. This here is in Istanbul, and this, this is an amazing thing. I mean, going there, this, this is the poorest neighborhood in the world, and you just pick people out of the crowd, and they were, like, the best people to shoot because uh, we tell them not to look at the camera. They don't look at the camera. I mean, you never find that in America. Those are the real astronaut convoy vehicles that they take out. And this is at Mont Saint-Michel in France, and you should see trying to direct 500 sheep. That's a fun job. I love this sequence, though. It's literally, it's like patriotic and simple and beautiful and just like about, you know, America. I don't know. I find I, I'm sort of a cynic and, and not, you know, incredibly jingoistic or anything, but it's, uh, I find it moving. I really do. There is one thing that has nourished our souls and elevated our species above its origin. Here's the right stuff shot coming up with it. See, here you go, boom. The 12 guys walking 
I just knew it was a trailer moment, shooting at 120 frames, and uh, it was a really neat day. This was shooting right under the space shuttle, and there was a really neat feeling among the cast and crew, because we're working around a live shuttle that's going up in one week. It's very, very rare. I mean, the footage we're getting right now is extremely rare to get. That NASA cooperated so much that they let us shoot on this gantry. I mean, this, this gantry where we're using the scene between Ben and Bruce is right where the, the astronauts escape down this 2,000-foot cable into a sand pit if the shuttle were ever in trouble. I know, Harry. I'll, uh, try not to disappoint you. And all this is real, where, where Ben and Bruce are walking down the gantry into the white room, which we were able to shoot, which has never been shot. Uh, it's all the way down through those doors. And we were able to shoot two minutes. They stopped prepping the shuttle for two minutes while we shot this scene. Bruce was very funny. He goes, Mike, you filming? Because I couldn't take any lights or sound. He goes, you filming? And I'm like, yep. He says, because I'm going to make a break for it and right, go right into this door right here. Well, he didn't do that. Ben actually tried to slide in, and uh, he got scolded for that. I just said to hell with it. <laughs> got on to the space shuttle Columbia just because I figured I'd never have another opportunity. And there was a guy in, like, a big clean suit in there who was like, sir, please leave the space shuttle. Being in the actual location helps your performance enormously because there's no need to sort of manufacture the kind of awestruck amazement and the, you know, the sense of majesty and of the enormity of the scope of the movie because it's all there for you. It's much more difficult when you're sitting looking at a green screen than it is when you're actually standing under the gantry of a space shuttle. We were around some very, very big toys in the world. I mean, from a $400 million oil rig to $6 billion shuttles and $2 billion B-2 bombers. Someone did an inventory of all the equipment we were around, shooting around, and it, 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 it came up to the neighborhood of $19 billion worth of equipment. And this night launch, which they filmed way ahead of time, was incredible to watch. And then there were several more launches while we were down at Cape Kennedy. And we got a chance to watch them from the closer vantage point, you know, and it was just amazing. Watching this movie actually brings back a lot of mostly memories of being in, in Florida, which was kind of the most interesting time. It was a lot of fun. Most movies, you know, you show up at some relatively dull location and it's kind of like, well, you know, where's the movie theater in this town and is there a decent bookstore? But uh, with this location, it was just, it was like a life experience to sort of be there. It's the kind of thing you would, you know, the ultimate field trip, the kind of thing you'd never get the chance to do otherwise. Our first cooperation with NASA started with a day launch, shuttle launch, and uh, we shot it with 12 cameras. It's so sensitive shooting around the space shuttle that you have to tape and tether everything. And if we were to drop a pen from the gantry while we were shooting, they would scrub the launch. That's how serious they are about the safety of that shuttle. Um, you're dealing around a $6 billion piece of equipment and sitting on a, on a fuel tank that's the size of a large bomb. We shot the day launch and it went well, but it wasn't as spectacular as I wanted, and it was definitely cool space shuttle footage, stuff that would 
would blow away anything the news had ever done or stuff you've seen. But there's something I saw. I saw on a poster a night launch, and I'm like, oh my god, this is really cool because it lights itself up at night. It's beautiful. There are very few night launches, and, and fortunately, there was a night launch about two months after our day launch. It was really nice during the course of the filming that he would show us the effects even as they were being built and inserted in because then you, you could get a sense of what was happening, what you were supposed to be reacting to, you know. And it just made you feel like it was a real movie, you know. You get to see, like, even they, they, when they're temporary, they look like kind of pencil drawings, you know, as they're being animated and stuff. It, it makes a big difference, you know, to feel like, because you feel so foolish just sitting in some chair shaking, you know what I mean? Going like, well, how intense is the shake? You know, and these are questions that you, it's hard to answer until you actually see some of the footage and you go, oh, I get it. I, I, I have a sense of how I would feel if I had just come through that, you know, when you're shown a picture of this thing hurtling through space. Those two shuttles passing, coming off the Earth's surface, um, those are models that are spinning around, and that is a, a photographic Earth, and then we add a halation onto the Earth, such as a halation you just see right there. I was very into those things. I was very into making my Earth look real. And this is a particularly good one where you just saw that Earth with the sun reflecting off that photograph. And we would spin. The rule in my space was to spin all our Earths subtly so you see some movement and uh, to give it a 3D feel. Uh, whereas you look at Deep Impact, it's like a pure bad CG. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like painterly. And we spent a lot of time and a lot of care trying to take real photographs and manipulating them. Outer space yet. Roger Houston, we have a visual on the Russian space station initiating retro burn. The reason why we couldn't call this the mirror, we call this Russian space station, we didn't want the mirror to fall apart while we were shooting the movie and get a bad laugh. We actually met with people that lived on the mirror and um, so don't be surprised if he's a little the astronauts that lived on the mirror call it the glove box of an old car. You can put something in there and lose it forever. The mirror is stuffed with so much junk. There's mold growing on the walls. I mean, it smells like, like leaky, leaky sewage. It's been up there for 11 years. And uh, they do get a little loopy. Peter's character, who is the... Russian cosmonaut is a little off and we're taking that from the knowledge that we got from our our guys that that I met with that actually lived on the mirror they they say the longer you spend in space it 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 affects your muscles because you don't have gravity to 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 do proper exercises that's why they do so much case study of exercising in space and uh, they actually do send shipments of vodka up there A lot of the guys, uh, actors, talked to Joe Allen about what's weightlessness like. We saw film and footage of it, and uh, Joe Allen would just talk about like what did G-forces feel like, someone sitting on your chest, that kind of thing. It was the only link to reality that we had, really, was his experience, so it was very valuable. And Joe Allen was always there, sort of advising us, and a lot of times he'd be like, Michael, that, that wouldn't really necessarily happen. And Mike was like, Joe Allen, ah. Doesn't matter. Okay, all right. Joe Allen was a big part of this movie, you know, and, and keeping you know some semblance of realism in terms of the way NASA works. He was integral in that process. 
and this is our Mir space station. Now this is an extremely hard scene because it's like if you kind of watch the third man, the one with all the tunnels, you start realizing that all tunnels look the same and you can build the same tunnel. I mean, I actually learned that in The Rock and I don't know why I didn't reuse that tunnel theory in this one because this set is so much, it's so similar in every direction. And as you, as you can see, when that one shot where it's panning through all three tubes, this being the longest where Peter's going down, which is like about 300 feet, goes way down, you get very confused in this scene. Um, and in ways I like that because I like being in an action scene where you do get somewhat confused and you don't know every single answer that's going on because if I were in a, in a, in a space station that were in the process of ripping itself up, you're not going to know everything that's going on and I, I like confusion at times. But this was particularly hard to tell where, each, where the characters were in the scene. It took so much cutting, so much cutting, so much cutting, so much recutting. I don't know if we ever nailed it. There were thoughts of even lopping this entire scene out. There were a couple reasons why I had the scene in there. One is to put our, our heroes in jeopardy and tell the audience that they can survive through an action scene. That, well, we're not going to hurt any of them and we're going to put them in a harrowing position and the entire mission might fail, but we're not going to hurt them. And then all of a sudden, you take them around the moon and you kill three of the guys. It, it flips. You, you've kind of twisted the rules on the audience. You've just told the audience you're not going to kill them in an action scene, and then all of a sudden you kill them. And it worked really well in The Rock when we, when we obliterated the entire SEAL team because we gave them enough screen time, and then all of a sudden you, you twist it on the audience and... You get rid of them all, it kind of, it has a shocking effect, and it's kind of an effect where no one in the audience moves. It's a long-ass time. God, Lev, I am so sorry about all the upheaval and strife in your country. Man, that must be tough up here with the loneliness. But I, I want you to know that up here, there are no Russians and there are no Americans. We're just spacemen. A lot of the actors added their own dialogue just because the actors uh, spend the most time with their own particular characters, the most time thinking about it, and so they tend to come up with stuff. Billy Bob's obviously a writer, Owen's a writer, Steve Buscemi's a writer, I'm a writer, you know, there's all these writers, so it was great to work with a bunch of kind of creative, collaborative guys like that because they all sort of had ideas and they'd all uh, were willing to try stuff, and, and when you few threw something out there, someone else immediately could kind of riff off that, you know what I mean? I only worked in, in one little part of the Mir space station. They, I, I think they had, they had actually started shooting the film on the Mir because they had a big fire sequence in it and, and a, a lot of big stunts that they had to get out of the way. And I, I was only in, in a little bit of that. I, I worked a couple days on just a, a little piece of that set that was actually cut off the huge set that they started working on. And I think I, I ran down a couple hallways and that was about it. So we'd shot a lot of this with this handheld little teeny camera that was great. I uh, tried to shoot it a little bit like DOS Boat. Made it very confusing and I had to end up taking out a lot of that footage because I was going for more chaos and I think I was just getting it too chaotic. I really wanted to do my own stunts and I wanted to, to do my own stuff and I kind of insisted on it. 
And this sequence was the sequence that really cured me of that desire. There's a moment later where I'm crawling up the um, column here as uh, it explodes, and there was an actual fireball that went by my head, and that is not a, um, you know, a, a horizontal set made to look vertical. It was actually vertically built 70 feet in the air on that ladder. So I climbed up the ladder and they lit a fireball off behind me. And uh, I mean, the, the, I cannot even describe that sensation except to say that it feels like there's a fireball right behind you. It's scary. And I was after that, I thought, you know what? Maybe I just won't do my own stunts. Maybe I'll leave it to the professionals because it really is kind of risky. I mean, it's controlled and all that stuff, but it's a little bit uh, frightening. Michael really want, wants actors to do their own stunts, but I kept insisting on, like, you know, making it bigger and doing my own stuff and having it be more flashy because I think I wanted to prove how brave I was or something or how I could do these action movies. And I think it made him a little nervous. I think he thought that this guy maybe has a screw loose or something. I had to resort to this locator device because after all else had failed with the editing process, we had to tell the audience the shape of this of, of the Mir space station, and we had to show locators of where they were actually going to. This was something very hairy for actors to be on. We're, we, this is a real fire right over our actors. The gas was sucking onto the ceiling, and we'd have them count to ten as the gas would pour out, and we'd light a match, and it would hit the top of the roof just like a backdraft, and they would run right under it. They've still got two men trapped in there. That would be Will Patton running through Sparks, and Sparks probably catching on his hair and catching his head on fire. Running through Sparks is not a fun process because it's little beads of, of molten metal hitting you. A lot of this stuff is like not really um, stunt. It's stunt slash acting. You know, you're acting amidst all these effects, so you kind of have to do your own stuff. You know, because they want to see your face, and it's not like so much a stunt as it is just acting amidst. You know, f there's fire around you and flying debris and sparks and the smoke with the liquid nitrogen, and so it's it's just kind of a low level hazardous area. You know, but you have to act in it, and. Uh, you know, a lot of times there wasn't even an option to not do it. This whole set, this sequence took a week to shoot of us just crawling along that thing. I mean, they built the set so it could move and the icicles and all this stuff and you never even really see it. Here's where the door blows up and goes right by my head. It's actually me and it was, I was scared. Watch. Right there, ready? Bang, see that? That was really frightening, and that came really close to hitting me. It was on a wire, but if I hadn't gotten through the little hatch in time... Ben's a big trooper. He's a great guy to work with. Uh, he really is. He's always there, willing to do anything, take risks. He had to jump out inside the mirror exploding, the door blowing over his head. I just wasn't getting what I wanted. And I do this nasty trick, and I said... Ben, you know what? I know you haven't done a lot of action movies, but this is how we would do it next time. You know, you say it so everyone hears, and it's it, it's partial public humiliation. And I know what I'm doing by... I, I mean, I don't mean it in a bad way, but everyone hears, and he gets fucking furious. Ben's like, I'll show you how it's done then. Okay, all right. And you, you amp him up to a point 
where he gets mad and then he does it right. Now I know there's no fire in space, but it is a movie and most people don't know that. And then we had all this high-tech stuff, and then we'd do this, like, really low-tech weightlessness where, like, Michael would just put the camera there and say, like, act like you're floating, you know, where you just sort of have to bounce around. And I was really bad at that. And Michael was like, didn't they teach you this in acting school? And I said, no, Michael. You know, they don't teach weightless mime at acting school, you know. It was like we'd go from this big-budget movie to this kind of, like, Roger Corman, real low-rent style where I was like, well, I mean, I could shoot this movie in my house with a video camera with my brother. Like, act weightless. We're in space, you know. It was really had, like, there were times where you thought, like, wait a minute. This is just a sci-fi B movie. But then, you know, they'd blow something up and we'd see the space shuttle and then you thought, oh, okay, it's not a B movie. I actually resorted in doing the, the visual effects to personally meeting with every single computer artist uh, that was working on the show. And I would sit down with them. I would have meetings in the editing process every single day. I actually talked to Cameron. I said, how do you arrange to do editing as well as deal with the visual effects? Because it's like a full-time job dealing with visual effects. And he says, you have two meetings a day. You do one at 12 o'clock. To one o'clock and then you do one at seven or seven to eight. CG's come so far but my biggest thing is to make sure that the light is right. Um, that's what gives away CG is, is the shadows aren't right and the, the quality of, of light is wrong. It's a hard thing because I'm someone who likes to shoot all my second unit but uh, I'm trusting all these people to carry out my vision. When they were placing cameras around the models of when they were blowing up or ripping apart, they would place them farther away than I wanted them. I wanted everything so close to be in your face, like those two rocket ships just passing us. I mean, it's scraping by the camera. Um, that's just the way I see the world, and I had to train everyone to try to see the world like I see the world. This All this interior stuff within the shuttle was actually on a gimbal that was shaking these guys quite violently. A gimbal is a device, I mean, they, it's like take the Disneyland Star Tours, that's on a gimbal. It's, it's like a hydraulic device that goes, it goes forward, back, side, it, it kind of shake. It, it, it's just a very uh, advanced type of hydraulic um, platform that can move quite rapidly, almost make it like a car wreck. What these, the, the, the actors were complaining about when they were trying to accelerate from 4,000 miles an hour to 22,000 miles an hour was the, the theory that when you're accelerating in space, it feels like an elephant on your back. Your eyes get sucked into your head. It's extremely uncomfortable. You don't lose consciousness like you would in a jet fighter because of there's no gravity, but it, it's the astronauts say that it's an intense pressure on your body. It makes a 300-pound weight on your arm. Welcome back, team. We have visual of the target. Now, working on this asteroid, we really tried to make it a mean-looking, vicious thing. It took a lot of design work. I mean, we've all seen asteroid movies where they're just one big blob of a rock. And I just knew it was just too boring, and uh, I wanted to stylize something to make it mean, because we were making a movie about an enemy that was inanimate. It's very hard making a movie about something that it's not living. So we tried to make this a living, breathing piece of rock that was vicious. One of the things that DreamQuest invented for this asteroid was 3D gases that actually can move around our shuttles. It's the first time it's ever been used where they had these 
colored gases that we we took from Hubble photographs um, of of star being born. They had these iridescent greens and blues, and we tried to emulate some of those. You know, this movie has you know 250 special effects shots. I think the most I've ever done in, in my career is about 80, um, and that might have been Crimson Tide. And we had some in the Rock. Uh, but this is, for me, was a great learning process on what you can do and what you can't do, and there's very little you can't do. All you need is a checkbook, and you know, figure out a way to do it. Um, you know, but each each shot was was um, you know pre-designed, uh, scrutinized by Michael, and uh, he kept going through. He had these guys in there every single day uh, to embellish them and make them better. And, and what's interesting about effects is the, the, the layers you can add to them. Uh, you know, there's so many passes you can put through the computer, so you can add shadows and, and steam and light and flares and all the things that, that we designed and, and Michael implemented in a lot of these shots to make them look real, movement, and, and they got better and better and better. It was just a rock, you know, just a chunk that sat out there before, and then we started adding the color and the steam and and all the things, the movement that, that Michael added, and, and uh, then it really became something very interesting. And also, the, you know, the spaceships themselves, um, as they developed and, and uh, made more computer passes, uh, they also took enormous shape. Uh, you know, from the crash landing, which was, you know, just a, you know, before it was just an animatic. Well, here, when we're trying to make the shuttle crash, I tried to make it horrific, tried to envision myself what it would feel like to be on, a, on something that was going down and had lost control. In reality, these guys, the vacuum would, would suck their faces out and blood would come from every single orifice. It's something that you can't put in a PG-13 movie. Uh, it was a lot easier to suck them out the window. Armageddon, I knew from the, the, the beginning, was going to be a PG-13 movie. Um, I wanted something that you can bring your family to that there was no swearing. I mean, going from Bad Boys, where the first three minutes, Martin Lawrence said fuck probably 20 times, and my mother actually saw one of the first cuts, and she says, honey, um, you know, there's a lot of swearing in the first reel. <laughs> and I actually took out, like, four fucks for my mom. But Armageddon was a movie that I wanted it to be PG. It was a movie that, that really hit the court of America. It was very patriotic. We made it that way because, as my grandfather always told me, you can make money if you sell stuff to middle America, and that's what this, this movie really hit the heartland of America. You know, it's kind of odd when you make a PG-13 movie. You've got to actually kind of dumb it up. You've got to kind of, you've got to make it for that 13-year-old, but you've got to make it interesting enough for an adult. And some of my fans might have been, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to have fans now, but, but I, I guess recently I've started to have fans and I might have upset some of my fans by doing a movie that was PG-13 because I shot Armageddon to look and feel like an R-rated movie but there was really no swearing. It wasn't as sophisticated as The Rock but it's also more sophisticated in other ways emotionally. When you compare the movies, Bad Boys had no emotion. It was just a fun ride. The Rock had emotion that was interesting but it was like we tried to milk every single thing of emotion where Nick Cage had a girlfriend and we tried to make it like he's got a baby and he's got to get back and it seemed to be more forced and Armageddon felt 
felt a little bit more natural, where the real emotion came in between Bruce and his daughter. You know, the amazing thing is to make a movie where they can laugh, cheer, and in the same movie they can cry. I've had so many, particularly younger kids, like 14, 15, 16, 17, uh, girls and guys come up to me and say it's the best movie I've ever seen. They look truly genuine with their face when they're saying it's the best movie I've ever seen. And I could remember back when I was a kid, you know, when you, when you see those seminal movies, like for me it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. At the time it was the best movie I've ever seen. Michael is, is a savant. I mean, he's really, really brilliant at making movies look like people expect these movies to look. But he's like a kid, you know what I mean? He really, he, I think that's why his taste is so in tune with the people who go to these movies in droves, because most of those people are, you know, kids themselves. Liv had an extremely tough role, because she had to be an anchor down there. And we had to put her through so many different emotional paces. And uh, we shot the, the stuff in Mission Control early on, and we had, to do, we had to do a lot of this emotional stuff within a week and, you know, just for her to play these different beats of what's going on, and uh, it was a very tough job for an actress. Come on, Watts, Sharp, somebody. And this is Capcom Houston. Come in, Freedom. I love this moment between Billy Bob and Liv. Billy Bob just looks terrible here, and it just looks like the world has been crushed around him. And, what that was was a very large-scale shuttle, which was 32 feet long, on uh, with with some very strategically placed uh, stalactites and blowing wind machines and whatnot. We had we had several different shuttle sizes. We had seven-foot shuttle sizes. We had uh, six-foot shuttle sizes, and we had a 27-foot shuttle. Because I'm a genius. The gauges will not read. They're all peaked like we're plugged into some magnetic field. Well, who on this space In terms of crowd-pleasing, Steve Buscemi is worth every single penny of his fee. Actually, after he saw the movie, the uh, screening at Cape Kennedy, he told me he needed to get some dental work. <laughs> You'll notice that when the bomb blows, you see his teeth quite clearly. I said, Steve, don't get some dental work. That's part of your charm there. you got a million-dollar mouth. Actually, the very first night of the shoot took place right here. This is the very first shot of our first night of principal photography. This shot was not working out because our steam machine broke, our wind machine broke. Everything was going wrong. This was the first night where we were testing out our spacesuits, which turned out to be a disaster. The problems you need to worry about when you're designing a spacesuit is you need to have actors that you can see their face in. You can see the soles of their eyes. That's where you get... I was very concerned how you can see these actors' faces uh, in a spacesuit and still be connected to them. Um, so we designed a, sh a shape of a mask that can deflect a lot of reflections, and we use very hot lights to help light them. As you notice, the reflections aren't that irritating on their face, and you can actually see under their eyes in these spacesuits. Um, these spacesuits needed to have their own battery-powered lights, which were specially designed HMI little teeny lights that we put on their uh, uh, helmets. They needed to have their own air systems, their own 
air that blew across her face so that their breath wouldn't fog up their face. And um, they need to have communication with me. So I was able to talk to them, and they were able to talk to me, and they were able to talk to each other. It was an amazing complicated sound thing, especially when you've got seven or eight of these guys in spacesuits and they're all trying to talk to each other and I've got to talk to them. The uh, very first night of the shoot where Ben was walking outside of the crash site, I said, I was way far away on a camera and I told him on the walkie-talkie, I said, Ben, I need you to, to pretend like you've been in a crash and you, you, you're kind of not walking steady. So he's walking out of the thing and he kept leaning down kept leaning down to try to find something and I'm like on the Milwaukee talkie system and I'm like Ben what are you doing what are you doing what do you get keep walking keep walking keep walking and uh, I say cut 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 unfortunately he it was the very first night of wearing that suit and he was trying to find a rock to bust his face mask because his whole air supply quit on him which means he was kind of suffocating and he couldn't get his neck harness off so we used Ben and Big Mike and some of the other guys to test the suits. They were the guinea pigs for uh, Bruce Willis. After Bruce doing 12 Monkeys, he who wore like a 100-pound uh, suit, he was really, really concerned about the spacesuits, and he kept asking all the actors, so how's it going on the movie? How you liking it? Because uh, Bruce got started late on the movie, and he, he would always end his conversation, how the suits? How the suits? <laughs> Both spacesuits were, were uncomfortable. They both weighed in somewhere around 90 pounds. I think the 12 Monkey spacesuit was a little bit heavier because I had a 50 pound briefcase to carry around as well. They weren't light, they were, they were homemade and, and uh, weighed much more than the actual NASA spacesuits did. I think the biggest nightmare of the entire shoot was uh, three weeks before first day of principal photography. I went to see the spacesuits after I had signed off on many, many, many drawings and, and samples and whatnot. And I went to see it for the first time, and I realized it looked like an Adidas jogging suit on a rack. That's where I almost killed myself, because if you don't have cool spacesuits, your entire movie is just screwed, bottom line. I mean, people have seen so many space movies, and if you have a lame spacesuit, it's like it's over. The image was so bad that day. I walk around the corner and I see this woman painting a leather glove gray and she had some rubber like sewn on to the knuckles. And I'm like, what is that? What is that? She goes, it's a space glove. I said, no, it's not. It looks like a gardening glove. You're painting gray. It was a glove they bought at a gardening store, okay? And they were putting on rubber things. So right then and there, I called my line producer, Jimmy, and I said, Jimmy, we are so fucked. And uh, Jimmy goes, Mike, we're not fucked. They're, you're just saying that. I'm like, Jimmy, get down here, drop whatever you're doing right now, and get down here. We had a major problem with our spacesuit because our designer was French, and she had done things with Luc Brisson, but they do things very differently in France. They're very more the artiste. This is not big American movie making, where if you don't have a spacesuit that works for a big fucking movie star, you are fucked. All right, I'm sorry for the language, but this is what goes through your mind because your entire movie hinges on these suits. And uh, what she was doing is she was holding too much of this on her own. And there are people around Hollywood that are experts. They're experts, spacesuit helmet designers, or experts that design just body suits. And it's a very specialized craft. It was one of our major problem spots of the entire movie. And luckily, we got rid of it right before principal photography. But uh, 
I think we must have spent a million and a half dollars on these spacesuits trying to design them. Now, people wonder where does this gun come from? And there was a scene that got cut out of the movie. Uh, we call them debris eliminators. Um, okay, don't get mad at me, but reason why we had a gun, because remember, I'm doing a PG-13 movie. They had toys attached to this. Mattel told me that guns with trucks sell more toys. All right, now I know that's a very bad thing. I had to add some of these things for my younger audience. And uh, using a gun, such as this scene, was one of them. We kind of don't know why it's there, but there was a scene that got cut out in the movie that explains why it's there. We kind of took it from a phalanx cannon, what they have on aircraft carriers and they have on battleships and certain things. Phalanx cannons are things that shoot plutonium rounds, 3,000 rounds, uh, in a very rapid pace that just kind of shoot debris and shrapnel out hoping to hit an oncoming missile that's coming towards the ship. Uh, that was a theory that we explained in the movie in a very, very quick scene that was cut out of the movie. Now, if I were to ever redo this movie, one of the things I would do is I would give myself another couple weeks and I would slow down some of the editing. And that's part of sheer lack of time of having to finish this movie. Such a massive movie to finish, we barely made the opening. We shot over a million feet of, of Kodak film, and when you shoot over a million feet, or maybe a couple films a year shoot that number, you get a lovely gift basket from Kodak with, a, with like six bottles of Corbel. Now, why six bottles of Corbel champagne instead of like maybe two Dom Perignon champagne? I don't know, but that's what they give you. Now, the editing process was very hairy. I had four editors on that sometimes went down to three and then two. There are a couple reasons why I like multiple editors. One, you can you can go through a lot of footage quickly and you can see a lot of progress in the movie. Two, I like shifting scenes around. When certain editors come into problem spots and you shift it around to another editor, you can sometimes come up with different approaches. For me, it's always the whole. It's always how do we tell the most effective story and what sequences help you tell the most effective story. You know, what we what you try to do in Armageddon is you got to fall in love with these characters. You've got to develop the characters. So how much of that development can the picture stand uh, when it's running, you know, at the time, maybe three hours? So you kind of have to look at, at, at each section of the movie and say, all right, what is not necessary to tell the story or create the characters that you fall in love with, uh, which is like character development. So if they don't have those elements in them, if they're not moving the plot along and they're not helping to... to to move the character along or the character arc along doesn't belong in the movie. And you'll see that right away. I mean, when you look at the whole picture, you'll see, well, why are we doing this? What's this doing in here? And you start pulling things out. And that's where where you you have to sit with Michael, who, who might have spent a week on a sequence and has fallen in love with some of the shots and, and some of the things he did with it. But when you step back from it, you say, well, it's not moving anything along. What's it doing here? And that's where you have your arguments. Um, and, and uh, sometimes you win them, sometimes you don't. But at least it makes them aware of, of, of things that we might be indulgent. And we all get, get too close to things and can't see it anymore because we're, we're, we're standing there. Somebody will walk in the room, see it for the first time. He says, what's that red blot doing there? You say, what red blot? And it's sitting right there in the center. You never saw it and you, because you've been staring at it too long. Uh, but a stranger will come in and say, get rid of it. And, and he might be right. Jay Bruckheimer is uh, really, really good at making these kinds of movies, and he's involved in all the elements of it that are sort of important. In specific, you know, he's very involved in casting. He's very involved in story development. 
And then he lets the directors shoot their movie. And then he gets involved again in the post-production process and in editing and in what parts of the movie are included and what aren't and what's missing and in testing the movies. He's very involved in being a go-between between the filmmaker and the studio. He has really good relationships with the people at the studio and uh, he's extremely proficient at marketing these kinds of movies and working tie-ins and uh, stuff like that. Anyway, Jerry's very, very smart. He's been doing these movies for a long time. He's really good at it, and he has an innate understanding of what makes them work and uh, somehow understands more or less the kinds of movies that people want to see. He's got a real capacity for sort of sating the movie-going public's desire for, you know, large-scale entertainment in the summer, and it's um, he really is the best there is at, at what he does. Kind of like Bruce, and that Bruce is the best deep-core driller. Jerry is the best... Uh, big budget movie producer. He keeps the movies on budget, he keeps them under control. His movies never kind of spiral out of hand, you know? And that's something that people complain about these movies a lot. That's why making movies with him is a safer bet because you know he's gonna sort of keep track of it. What I gotta worry about is the whole. Make sure it all has an arc to it. Um, and we all get caught up and get very myopic and forget about the big picture sometimes. So it's my responsibility to make sure we're telling the story that we set out to tell. And if you see something going wrong, you see something that you feel um, creatively you can make better, you, you pull Michael aside and you say, wait, you know, if we did it this way or we did it that way or if we changed things, it might be better. That's not necessarily, he might not listen to you, but at least he's got another point of view, which is important. We all want different points of view. We all try to save each other from failure. Secondary protocol. The whole idea of secondary protocol came up when NASA launches a shuttle. They have a guy that sits on a kill switch. They have a guy that has his finger near a button, where it's a self-destruct button. And my theory was NASA always backs itself up four, three, four, five times. They back themselves up. And that's why they have redundancy. They send up two shuttles. They see which one makes it. Um, it's not something they talk about openly in the movie but NASA always has redundancies. And um, they would never send that shuttle up there without the possibility of a remote detonation switch. Just in my mind, they would never send it, because if they, if they couldn't get that craft through and, they, and it got punctured, the skin got punctured through rocks, they could still land it on that thing and at least do a surface detonation. So we tried to m create this entire radio mess up and where we realized that the the whole authority protocol is falling apart. I guarantee you, if you do this, you kill us all. I've always had a fascination with going against government yes, to do certain things. General, he wants you. This is Kimsey. Yes, sir. I understand. This guy is awesome. Keith David is just a terrific actor. He was in Platoon and Off Limits and... Um, Men at Work, Charlie Sheen movie, where he was really funny. He played a deranged vet. He was one of the, it was one of the thrills for me to get to work with him, Will Patton, and Billy Bob and Steve. Getting some of these these actors to do this uh, wasn't easy, believe me, because it's such an ensemble piece. Every actor wants to be the star and, and wants to have a huge huge part in the movie. And there's so, so many small little parts that are so important to the picture. That bomb design was a seventy-five thousand dollar, really intricate design, an amazing piece of craftsmanship done by this artist who hand cuts all his own metal work. 
When I shoot, I add a lot of foreground. I like shooting through things. I like moving the camera. You know, it's partially because you're doing a movie that has a time clock. You're going to a lot of different places. It gives it a sense of energy. I get to work in this scene with a good friend of mine, Will Patton, who I've known for about 25 years. We were both kind of knocking around New York together 20 years ago, sometimes up for the same parts, and it's really fun working with him in the movie and having specific scenes with him. This is Steve Buscemi, he was just a genius. When I met with Steve in my office, discussing his character, he said, I want to be a genius, and I know better than most people that this mission is so far from, so far-fetched, it's never going to work, and I'm just going to enjoy myself. And uh, I'm not going to die with my panties in a bunch, that's what he said. I don't want to die with my panties in a bunch. They just let me out of the nervous home. <laughs> I think it'd be funny if it turned out that it was all a prank initiated by, by Sling Blade, who got out of the nervous home and was like, there's an asteroid coming, but there was no asteroid, and he somehow snuck into NASA, and they just sent him back to the nervous home in Arkansas at the end. Our apologies, Mr. Stamper. Somehow he got out of the nervous home. Ah, we didn't know. <laughs> to get Air Force approval, this scene with the gun wasn't in, and we added it later to add more heightened tension to the scene. And I think we were cringing when they finally saw it. The, the generals saw it, and they have to approve your movie. And if they don't like a scene, they can have it cut out of the movie. It's a very scary thing. When you, when you get DOD clearance, that's just the rule. The Air Force would have objected to pulling a gun on Bruce and Bruce hitting him. You know, we did it respectful enough with the gun and having the secondary protocol, and he's there to protect a mission that they let us slide with it. So had they objected, it, we'd have to revisit it. Uh, not necessarily that we change it, but we certainly would have to, to uh, put some caveats in it. But I, you know, I think you, they were smart enough to understand it's about the whole, not the little individual scenes. And as long as you don't make them out as you know, druggies or, or people who drink and, and, and show up drunk at work, I think that you know, you're, you're, you're accurate in your assessment that they are professionals and those are the things that don't happen there. Had it not been that we had a group of terrific actors who all got along, it could have been a nightmare for Michael and myself. But as it turned out, uh, they all really liked each other. Bruce became the gang leader of all of them. It was great because Bruce has got a great sense of humor, as does Ben. And, and when you have Steve Buscemi and, and the rest of the guys, um, they all somehow made fun of everything and had a good time doing it. Yet, you know, it was very stressful and, and physically tough for them. William Fickner here. When, when we were doing the scene, he was too calm, and I kept trying. He's such a calm New York actor. I kept getting mad at him. I'm William. We need more. You gotta give me more. You gotta get mad. You gotta get angry. You got the beep of the bomb going. It's like I really had to rile him up to get as much. What we're doing here is 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 we're taking the real military point of view, which was Bruce is saying right now. He says, we're 100,000 miles away, and no one knows what's going on but us. And that's exactly what an American military guy can do. If he's on his own in a jet fighter and he's lost communication and 
you know, he's allowed to take action on his own. There was a scene between Bill Fickner and I that I, I thought was was interesting, was was more about the about the humanity of what was going on than about the mission. I like that scene. I mean, there are all the scenes where where it's just about ordinary people behaving. I, I found those scenes to be more uh, more interesting than the special effects. I mean, special effects can only take a film so far, and then you have to really rely on the actors. I really like the scene. I like the intercutting in the scene. I like the tension in the scene. And it's weird, because those clock things, and we've done it a million times in movies, but the clock works, you know? I mean, you know that this bomb is not going to go off, but yeah, I've seen people cringe in the audience. They're biting their nails. I mean, it's just... It's just a thing in movies that sometimes works. Come on, come on, come on! Negative feet. Pretty good job. Doing good job. Track flipped. Hot set. It better be go. Red or blue? When the shit hits the fan, I like to add comedy in little bits. It just seems to be, for these type of movies... It's just such the the great icebreaker, you know. You come from extreme tension to a laugh, you know, and I, I think you get audiences on nervous laughter. God, it sucks up here. Sir, the clock has stopped at three seconds. Film is always a story, and you got to be a storyteller. And, you know, when you look at Michael's commercial work, you'll see that each one is usually a little story, and there's always something that's uniquely interesting in, in his work. I look for talent, and especially in a director, I'll look for something that's, that I haven't seen before. Something that, that moves me in, in, in a visual way, in an emotional way, in a comedic way. And, and that's why I choose the Michael Bays and the Tony Scotts. Everything they do is unique. If Tony Scott had a kid with Jim Cameron, it would be Michael Bay, cinematically speaking. And uh, he's very obviously involved in the visual aesthetic. He was an award-winning photographer. And he, he's an incredibly high standards for what sort of goes in his movie vis-a-vis -vis the look of it. When I was a kid, I loved going to the movies that were more mature than I was able to understand, like the Poseidon Adventure. And then I think the movie that really affected me, like it affected so many people, was Jaws. I mean, it just, it was amazing to be affected that much from a movie to be living in Southern California and to not want to go in the water. <laughs> Since then, I've seen sharks face to face, and it's okay. Going back to, oh, I remember, The Exorcist. That was a night where I slept with my parents right in between my mom and dad because I was so terrified. Those are some of the movies that had some effects when I was a young kid. Well, my visual style, it, I think it just developed when I was doing photography. When I shoot and I direct, I set up almost every single camera position. I'm very much involved in lighting and how I want it to look. I like to offset things and really use the frame of anamorphic, putting people on one side, and I like to do intense close-ups so that on a movie screen it really pops out, where you come from the top of the brow to right, right below the chin, doing these big shots like of Steve Buscemi there that's on a, on a movie screen. That's an immense close-up, and that's a lot more close-up than most people shoot close-ups. We used some very old anamorphic lenses that gave brilliant flares, and we used it as a technique in the movie. And I used real anamorphic lenses and real anamorphic film 
because I got up such a bigger negative and my release prints looked much better than Super 35 release prints. I used Super 35 on the rock and I didn't like it. Michael Bay's visual style, he has a, a way with the lenses he uses, with the camera movement that he uses, with the casting that he does, with the way he uses color and wardrobe and design that I've never seen before. And by the way, the visual style doesn't make a hit movie. I mean, you could have brilliant cinematographers and nobody will show up. I was the only actor who drove the actual truck, and uh, it was just like a Chevy 350 engine. They put in that thing and then dressed it up with all this other stuff. The tricky thing about driving around these canes in South Dakota was that it's so much wider than a car. You know, no rearview mirrors or anything. So I was constantly scraping the wheels on the sides of the canyons. And the car guys weren't too happy about that. Some of the stuff was done with models. Like they had a miniature armadillo that ran, you know, like a remote control buggy like that you get at Toys R Us. This scene of the armadillo jumping was a scene that was contested with the studio for quite a while because it was expensive, it was complicated, but it was a scene that I put in there for a younger audience. It's something that kind of pushes the boundary for an adult, but it's short enough and fun enough that an adult can get sucked in. And I just knew that if we were going to go down the wrong road if we didn't have fun scenes like this for my younger viewers, such as if we were just going to have the bomb ticking down and government intrigue and conspiracy, it just wasn't, it wasn't enough for kids. And, uh, you know, me knowing my audience, I really fought hard for this scene because the studio wanted me to dump it from day one. You know, I supported him because, you know, Michael understands this, an audience well enough because he's part of it. He goes a little younger than I do as far as the audience that he can appeal to than what I can appeal to. I'm stuck in my early 20s. He, he can really think like a young boy. He can think like a 14-year-old, which is great. Saying these lines with nothing going on, you feel ridiculous. It's absurd. You're in this little fake truck. You're in some parking lot in Burbank. You know, you don't uh, want to get too carried away. Then we had to do this whole sequence of shots with Lev hanging on the outside, and they're shooting rocks and ice at him, which you can't even see. And... I really heard, and he was griping like this don't man always shooting at my crotch. It was just an ordeal, you know, and hanging on wires and getting blown around and the smoke in front of you and all this stuff took forever and the harness that he wore really chafed him and all this stuff is just somehow much more of a hassle than it looks in the end product. But it was worth it. Well, that's pretty cool. If we could have just seen that while we were shooting, it would have made it all so much easier to do, but... We go into it blind and hope that um, you don't look like a complete idiot by what ends up happening, of course, because if they had made it like a minor bump and you're sitting there going, Aah! then you just look like a really bad actor, you know what I mean? It's sort of the backwards way of doing it where they gauge the effect according to your performance. Some of it's miniatures, some of it, like that guy hanging under this, the, the, the armadillo was a real armadillo on a crane on a green screen right here. And we put that model behind. Like right there, you saw a little guy flapping through on that very wide shot. They took our, our real guy and they shrunk him way down. This is a miniature. It's crashing through on a, on a set. It's a pretty advanced miniature. That miniature, I think, was worth $150,000. Now resides somewhere in my office. Don't tell Disney. The whole theory was they were supposed to land in this deserty terrain that was softer and it was easier to land, but they overshoot their landing when they're crashing. Uh, the good shuttle overshoots their landing by 26 miles, and they land in a spikier section of the asteroid, which is 
our big gigantic set with the we built at stage two at Disney uh, Disney has a stage it's one of the largest stages in LA and it still wasn't large enough for me so I went into the stage and and I said well let's take out the floor and we dug down 40 feet so this was a stage basically larger than a football field we dug out 40 feet the pit cost us two million dollars just to dig it out if you want to get into business start digging pits for movie studios that's where you make your money I mean they made two million dollars in a week that gun actually was an old Gatling gun from World War II. It needed a full-time uh, police officer to, gu to guard it at all times because I'm sure that gun has killed many, many, many people. Uh, it's from a certain type of plane and fires, I think, a thousand rounds in like 15 seconds. We dug this pit so that I now had a 90-foot tall stage. The stage was so long. The guys looked like little ants on this stage because I like shooting low shots and I didn't want to do sky replacements and uh, we built a stage that was wall-to-wall -wall set meaning that there was no space for any storage of any kind it was a a set all the way through and through you walk in you are on the asteroid set what's going on here these are earthquake plates that were built into our stage. We had a 20 foot by 20 foot section that had plates that can actually hydraulically move and lift and kind of jump around. We're kind of showing you a mirror image of what happened on an oil rig when these pipes blew out. Jesus, I'm cooking. It was such a hard place to work because it was so immense and it took so much manpower to work from the steam lines to the 100 mile an hour fans to you know, it created such a mold spore count in there that everyone started getting sick and we had to keep getting it disinfected. You can't really tell watching the film what it was or what it smelled like there, but they use this cocoa mulch, this stuff that it is, is, is supposed to be the asteroid dust. And it's actually called cocoa mulch and it smells like cocoa. So after about two weeks of two or three or four or five layers of this cocoa mulch being blown onto the asteroid set and ice and, and, and water on it, it developed this, uh, its own atmosphere. It was really, uh, <laughs> it was a mess. We were rolling around in, in a, about four inches of cocoa mulch and water. So at the end of the day, you had to take a couple showers. Prepare the world for bad news. This was a shot stolen from the Lincoln Memorial. That was kind of amazing. I distracted the policeman with a camera crew setting up a fake shot down on the uh, lake, the reflecting pond, as I snuck into the Lincoln Memorial with my uh, Steadicam operator. We ran in, we were able to get one shot, and the cops come running up, you know, telling me we were breaking the law by being there. I love the feel of these shots. This was in France, in India. This was in Istanbul. This was in Texas. These are real people. People just found basically off the street. You've got incoming. I got tracks. Norad's tracking four small incoming over Europe. I think one's about to hit near Paris. This Paris sequence that we're looking at right now was something that was added uh, much later after a preview. We realized that we had. Um, this phenomenal opening where it hits New York and then we have a sequence uh, where Shanghai gets hit and then you sit there for an hour and 20 minutes and the asteroid doesn't do anything. 
Uh, so we felt that we needed, I always felt in the script that we needed this particular sequence and um, it kept getting pulled out for budget reasons. And, and uh, you know, when Joe Ross saw the picture, he said, well, we need one more pop in here. And so we kind of had been kicking around. And you know, I, I told Michael, I said, whatever city we pick, let's make sure it's a city the audience will recognize without a title. And, uh, you know, Paris is so distinctive with the Eiffel Tower. Since we'd hit America and we'd hit the Orient, we figured we'd, we'd do something in Europe. And, and Paris became the place, that, other than London, that, you know, you can identify in one shot. And then you, we only have three or four shots in the whole sequence, so you had to get it right away. Guess what, guys? It's time to embrace the horror. There was actually many, many funny lines that we had to cut out of Steve and this whole philosophy of, like, he found a perfect spot out here. He's going to sit back and enjoy it and watch the earth. He's got front row tickets. He called it a surfing safari. Quite funny stuff, but I think it crossed the line of just making it too funny. Now, this little thing that Bruce Willis is looking at right there is our radio-controlled armadillo that's three feet big. And it was on this little cliff that I saw in South Dakota, and I said, you know, it'd be cool. Let's just put it up there and just try it. We drove it around up there for about an hour until the operator said, go right. And he was supposed to me. He meant left, and it went off a cliff and crushed. So we found every single part in that desert, and we put it back together. It was like huddling around a dead body. <laughs> Sorry. First week of shooting, our first casualty on the show. So uh, here's a place where I sort of arrive heroically and show up and save the day. It was part of Michael's big pitch to me about the character initially. It was like, you show up and you save everybody. You know, it's you who does it. You know, I mean, I haven't done another movie like this since, but I, I would do, do movies like this. Um, there's parts of this movie, like I said, that were incredible life experiences, you know, as an actor. Uh, going to NASA, the people I got to meet, the people I got to train with, the other actors I got to work with. Um, as an actor, it was a really good experience. It was also a really good experience as an actor in maintaining one's concentration, you know, in, in a just a ca totally chaotic environment. A lot of actors get freaked out if somebody moves in their eye line, you know, and this is a situation where everything was constantly moving in your eye line, and if you weren't extremely focused and concentrated, you just would sort of lose it because there was so much else going on. And... Uh, you know, as an actor, um, I learned a lot. I, I would do this, but I would only do, you know, I think I could only handle doing it, you know, once every two or three years because it's really draining and exhausting and a lot of work for just, uh, you know, one movie. There was there was some long days in that, in that hole. All the days on that asteroid were real long days. I think a lot of the actors really worked on playing against the enormity of the sets we were on and tried to underplay the performances whenever we could because we knew that the scale of the film and the special effects and the, the rocket ships and the asteroid and the oil rig were all going to be so big that, that we wanted to keep the characters honest. It's a lot easier to work on a, on a film where you're just asked to you know, show up and, and you work on maybe three sets and it's just about the acting. It's just about concentrating on the actual acting performance. There were a lot of other things, you know, physical elements, especially once we got on the asteroid and, and, uh, and the space shuttle, that are just about pretending that you're on a space shuttle or pretending that you're on an asteroid. They tried to go with this thing of the living asteroid and it was get angry at us and, 
I never quite got that until I saw the movie and realized that they were creating a kind of physically angry environment. Although, like I said, it certainly felt like a hostile environment. When I did The Rock, I signed a deal with Disney for two pictures, and I owed him my next picture. And the reason why I signed a deal with Disney is because I thought The Rock was going to fail. Um, I was up against Mission Impossible, Twister, Independence Day. So there were several movies that I was up against. I thought The Rock was going to fail miserably. I figured, well, I might as well get a job and be tied to Disney and they'll pay me money. And uh, But the only problem is I owed him my next movie, and I went through every single script in Walt Disney Studios, and there was not one that I wanted to do. Then I went to Jerry Bruckheimer. I went through all his scripts. There was not one in his huge pile that I wanted to do. And I realized, oh, my God, I'm a prisoner, and I'm going to be doing commercials for a while, so I better generate something myself. And I was sitting down with John Hensley, who was a writer who worked on The Rock with me, and John's a very big idea writer. His strength is, is big movie ideas. And uh, he said, you know all those horseshit asteroid movies? What if we make a great asteroid movie? I've got this idea where there's a killer asteroid coming to Earth, and they need to mount a mission with a space shuttle, and they need to land on this thing and drill. But the thing is, they need to take these oil drillers to help them drill a hole, and they land on the asteroid, and everything goes wrong. But that was basically the, the gist of the idea. And from there, we sat down and we pitched ideas back and forth, where I would say, let's use two shuttles. Where can they go between Earth and the moon? And how do we get it onto an asteroid? Well, we can encounter the Mir. I mean, that's the only man-made thing up there right now. What are we doing on Earth? Uh, where do we get these guys from? How would the, we train these guys? We had so many space questions, so many physics questions. So immediately, we worked up our, our idea into something like a five-page treatment, and we called Mike Stenson at the studio. He's our, one of the VPs at the studio. And we said, we've got this idea, and we need to get some help from NASA. And he got us in touch with Joe Allen, who was, he's basically like a mayor at NASA. He's like this little guy who's brilliant in his own right. He's an astronaut that was the first guy to ever be separated in space by himself on a solo flight with one of those jet packs. So we got in contact with him, and then he got us in contact with Ivan Becky, who is by far the smartest man I've ever met. And he says a lot. He says, well, I've got to run the computations through my computer. Um, I'm like, Ivan, we're making a movie here. And, and he says, well, I still need to run the computations through my computer. <laughs> and he helped us come up with one of the ideas where we actually whip around the moon and we have to come up behind the asteroid and land on it. He had us invent extra rocket boosters that we would strap onto our shuttles to help it make it to the moon. Um, we fabricated that you can refuel at the mirror. So anyway, this story started to take root, and we then had our little pitch. We kind of flushed it out to a 30-minute pitch. And from there, we called up Joe Roth. I've got a very good relationship with Joe Roth. He's the head of uh, Walt Disney Studios. He says, so what do you got? And we told him the story. And he kind of just sat there 30 minutes later, and he just goes, wow. We're going to make this Disney's biggest movie of 98. And 
why don't we call it Armageddon? He came up with the title right then and there. And uh, I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, what does that mean? We don't have a script. Um, did we just get a green light for the movie? Are we going to make this movie? It shouldn't be this easy in Hollywood. That shot is the cable cam done with a stuntman's rig. It's a accelerator, decelerator, and we put it on a camera carrier. You scoop it up, you turn it on radio control, then you spin it, and it spins all the way down right into the hole and keeps it level. From musicals, I've always liked the idea of privileged angles. When I was in school back east at Westland, I studied with Janine Basinger. And each semester we had very intense course from either westerns, from the Mexican westerns to, you know, you'd see about six, seven, eight movies a week. And it was pretty intense on a full college schedule to see that many movies a week. One semester I had the musicals and I thought, oh, I'm going to hate these musicals and I actually love them. And I think it's because they really exploit cinema. It's really, I think, the first group of of cinema that really helped show privilege angles all over the place. It's just a lot of fun as an actor to, to pretend uh, that you're up in a spaceship. It's interesting, astronauts are, are very much akin to stuntmen. They, don't, they always want to downplay what it was like and what they did. and. I mean, for us, for the actors who were there talking to, to real astronauts, it was, it was a, it's a pretty amazing thing. And, and, and to talk to these guys, they, were, they had a very uh, matter-of-fact attitude about it. It was just their, their job, and it's just what they do to go up into a rocket and be shot into outer space and hopefully come back safe. This day, I was really sick. I had bad food poisoning, but I think it sort of worked from the look on my face as we draw the straws, and I realized that... You know, I'm going to die. And the scene between Bruce and I, where we go down in the elevator and then, you know, he tricks me and pushes me back in, where Bruce is going to sort of martyr himself. You know, initially that was um, less of a scene. And it just kind of evolved into a more emotional thing. I don't know. I mean, there was sort of the cool way to do it, which is just to stiff upper lip everything. But I thought, like, in real life, this guy who you loved, who was like a father to you, was going to die the trauma of thinking that I was going to die and then the last and wanting to be up to the task of that and then at the last second being robbed of that but also seeing him go I just thought you know nobody ever does really highly emotional scenes in movies like this they people always shy away from showing all that much emotion they're afraid that if you get really upset that somehow it means you're not cool or you're not sufficiently heroic but I thought Bruce is the hero, really, so I can have the opportunity to do that. And I think, why not? It's, it seems realistic to me. And I, one thing I wanted to do in this movie was apply as much realism as I could to a, a kind of otherworldly situation. So I did some where I was less upset, but then I tried some where I was really, really upset and, like, bordering on hysterical. And uh, I guess they liked them because they left it in the movie. You're supposed to be moved at the end when Harry dies, and... Uh, I wanted the audience to feel like, you know, people cared about this guy. People loved him. That's my job! You go take care of my little girl now. That's your job. I agreed with Bruce early on. I was at his house in Idaho, and we were talking about the entire movie's got to build to this point right here when he says, you got to take care of my little girl. 
and then when he talks to his daughter. And I just love this image right here of Ben as this thing goes up. He's telling him, I love you, and he's trying to keep looking through and peek through, and you see the last image of Bruce. What happened? He's got an actor crying here, and you buy it. Got a great performance out of Ben. Bruce breaks your heart here. It's emotional. It's beautifully done. It shows Michael has a real heart. And it's a difficult scene, Ada, as an actor, to play to pull it off and be for an audience to accept. And Michael did it. So, I mean, these are, these are real risky scenes to do because they're emotional, and he let the emotions flow. Michael Bay is what really attracted me to the project because we had such a great collaboration on both Bad Boys and The Rock that it was exciting to come back and, and work with him again. And, you know, I like the story. He called me up one day, and... He kept nagging me, I want, to, I want you to work on this picture with me. And I said, yeah, you're, you got, you're covered, don't worry about it. And then he called me and said, look, i got to tell you the story. And uh, we sat down at breakfast uh, in Santa Monica at Shutters, and uh, he laid out the entire story to me, or what the story was at that point. And I said, it's a terrific movie, and if, if it works out that you need me, I'd love to you know, jump in and help you out. And that's what happened. Bruce did this scene actually the very first day he arrived at the set where we processed it through monitors. And it was really interesting. He was looking at pictures of his daughters and uh, tears just flowed to his eyes. It's very hard trying to make a studio movie. There are not many studio movies where you kill your leading star. And uh, I felt we were able to do it by uniting Ben and Liv. It was a way to make Bruce live on. There were people that actually saw the movie that spoke to me that said they didn't think he would actually kill himself. Sure, we heard that a lot. We said that, you know, people would say that's a big mistake, uh, the fact that you take your lead character and, and you kill him. Um, especially Bruce Willis, you don't, certainly don't want the audience, when you make a movie this expensive, to walk out of the theater and be depressed. You know, but I think we kind of give you a bittersweet ending, which to me are the, the best, where you feel kind of good and you feel also a little bit sad. and. And I think Disney never wavered. I mean, they really, nobody ever came to me from Disney and said, are we making a mistake uh, by doing what we do to Bruce? But I think people in the industry said, this is nuts. And, and I heard it a lot from the press. Some of the deep impact people had given away our ending and were telling the press how nuts it is. And, and, you know, we never wavered in any of it. In fact, Bruce came to me and said, promise me, I'll do this picture, but you got to promise me one thing. I said, what is that, Bruce? He said, that I die at the end of the movie. And I shook his hand, I said, I promise you it'll be that way. Once they had made that choice, I think everybody stayed with the idea. I, I don't think there was ever any serious discussion about keeping me alive or you know, letting someone else stay on the asteroid. They knew that somebody had to stay and squeeze the trigger. You know, somebody had to die. And I'm just glad that they let it be me. The audience certainly has an ability now to comprehend things at a much quicker pace than they did, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I think with so many television channels and um, music videos and computer games and where kids have to have this amazing hand-eye coordination, they grasp th things much quicker. And, you know, I just go by myself. I, when I sit in the theater and I'm watching a movie and I start getting antsy, I look around, I see other people are coughing and going to the bathroom, and so they're feeling the same thing I'm feeling. And I will sit in our movies and, and before they're released, and I'll feel the same thing. 
and I'll sit with even in this case it'd be Michael and say Michael I'm getting nuts here the reason I'm getting nuts is I don't understand what's going on I'm getting bored we're not getting to the point of the scene we got to fix it and we'll sit in there we'll do it films have rhythms you know they're peaks and valleys and you certainly have to take an audience up and down uh, but you don't want to bore them and you don't want to confuse them at least I don't and that's what's important to me because I make the movies for my enjoyment and the day that I'm wrong and the audience says get out of here I, I won't be around doing it anymore because they won't give me money but until then I'm gonna keep making movies that entertain me and not that I discard the audience or discount them because I don't because we have previews that tell you an enormous amount they tell you an enormous amount we listen to them certain things you can't listen to because the person they hate the most is the villain which is they're supposed to so you're not gonna change that but they certainly have a good keen sense of what a entertains them and B confuses them I don't want to confuse them. I want them to understand the story they're watching. I mean, I want—I like movies that have a beginning, middle, and end. I want to give back to an audience and to the world pictures that I loved when I grew up and I was excited by. Because you want to have new generations be as, just as thrilled to sit in those theater seats and eat their popcorn as I was. To me, it's a very romantic experience to sit down in a dark room with a lot of other people and to be entertained. To sit back and forget about everything. Um, and for me, good movies take me on a ride. You know, I always say it's a transportation business. They take me away. And if you do it right, you're really gone. You can't think about anything else. I remember when I saw The French Connection, which is a picture I loved, I was Popeye Doyle. I was hanging there, you know, chasing him in the, in the, in the subways. And you want to give that back. You want to give that experience back because you enjoyed it so much. Let somebody else enjoy it. Because in a way, it's kind of selfish because I enjoy Armageddon. I don't make Armageddon because, you know, there's a paycheck at the end, which is nice, and we get that, and we love it, and nobody's going to turn it down because I, I want to go see the movie. When Michael laid it out, I said, well, that's a picture I wanted, I'd spend, you know, my money to go see. And I'm at the theater every weekend. When I'm not in town and available, my first choice is to go to a movie. If I can see two in one night, I'm really thrilled. I just love the medium. And, you know, my dad said to me, don't get a job that you have to look forward to your two-week vacation at the end of the year. So get something that you don't want to take a vacation from. Get something that you're really thrilled with. I'm asking you just one more minute. Another character that I play in this film, Harry Stamper, does die at the end of the film. As the actor, knowing that, I was trying to get a handle on how I should behave in the film. And really what I came up with was I, I could have come up with all kinds of backstory justification on, on the character, but he had to be a likable guy. He had to be a guy that, that you were rooting for and, were, and wanted to see accomplish the task. They always say you see things in slow motion when something bad is going to happen. I thought that that all looked really good on film. It was, a, it was a nice way to handle it, you know, to handle someone's death with a certain amount of dignity and still make it visually interesting. I don't really think I, I broke any new acting ground for myself. I just had to be a, a leader. I mean, that may be an, an oversimplification of it, but that was really what I was trying to keep in in my head to keep the characters simple and not have them be. There were a lot of other characters that were the geniuses of the film and the smart guys of the film and the and the 
the military presence and all that. But my character just had to be a leader and, and had to inspire his team to win the game. You know, this movie was criticized by the critics quite a bit. And the thing that's amazing, most critics are 45 years old on the average. And I remember I was watching an esteemed L.A. Times critic sitting in a theater full of 800 people. And he didn't know I was there, and I was watching him. And he literally looked like he had a scowl on his face. And I'm telling you, the audience 12 times cheered. And I don't think he liked that. I think the audience nowadays is not listening to what critics are saying, especially for these type of movies. These are these are entertaining movies. This is this, this is a movie where you're supposed to just lose yourself and be entertained, and we're not doing anything more than that. And there's nothing wrong with movies that, that just go for entertaining an audience. And the thing is, I knew this movie would have an audience. I knew this audience would be a huge audience too, and it, and it really caught Middle America big time. I think, you know, one critical, an early critical that they respect and like will, will take off on the picture and it'll kind of set a tone uh, for the rest of them. And, and we had some early reviews that weren't very flattering and a lot of them kind of uh, ganged up on the picture. But, you know, we also got some great reviews and, and, and a lot of very famous critics did like the movie. So, you know, you take the good with the bad. And when you make a picture that of this scope and hyped as much as this picture was hyped um, prior to it coming out, um, the press is always skeptical. And, and looks to shoot at you. And it's also a style of filmmaking that we do and the kind of pictures that I've made in the past. For whatever reason, they tend to, to rather discover something on their own rather than being told the picture's going to be a hit. This picture was picked by Premier as being the number one picture of the summer, so it's got a heavy weight on its shoulder, and they'd rather find the full Monty, picture that comes out of nowhere, a uh, small character piece, which is a wonderful movie, and they should tout it. And they certainly will have an effect on that movie, because a movie like Armageddon, as much as you bash it, um, if it works, the audience is entertained, and they spend a lot of money to go see it. You know, again, this picture, is a, I think, will end up being the highest-grossing movie I've ever, I've ever made. So the movie is effective for an audience, and that's what I make it for. I make it to entertain people. Uh, I make movies that are hopefully very satisfying to a mass audience. Here's this, like, uh, the bodyguard slow motion spinning in a circle, uh, end of the movie shot. Michael kept saying, this is your hero shot. You come running out and you're the hero. The movie is over, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to wrap the movie up very quickly, because once the enemy is destroyed, the movie is over. And we're trying to resolve other stories very quickly right now. What's most important to, to any film is, of course, the ending, because that's what's left uh, with the audience as they walk out. And, and if you're going to make a very successful movie, that ending better work. But they'll forgive you for the beginning, but they won't forgive you for the ending. And you've got to tie up everybody. And you see at the end of this picture, we made a real conscious effort to tie up every character that you saw in the movie. And I also felt that you had to have some real emotion. Uh, between the characters and you know Michael added the wonderful stuff with uh, Steve Buscemi at the end and, and the girl and, and added all that and kind of improvised it and I wanted that wedding at the end I felt that was important that we do something that was fun and, and Michael could shoot it like an 8mm or a video clip and and you know I had the idea where uh, Billy Bob gets the patch and Bruce rips it off because it was a, 
a line in the story I felt was really important and, and added that to it. They're emotional things. They're, they're things that might be a little corny, but I'd rather err on that side than being too cold. And I, I, I believe in the kind of American spirit. It's, it's NASA's belief that, that we'll figure out a way to solve this problem. And they do. And the biggest story to resolve is Liv and Ben. Michael was saying, do you think we should get married at the, you know, Liv, you and Liv should get married at the end? And I said, yeah, you know, because originally we were just going to end on the tarmac, which I thought was kind of a downer thing. Like, well, Harry's dead. We're in the tarmac. End of movie. And I thought, you know, it's the, it's the, we're threatened the end of all things. So let's have like a life affirming thing, like a wedding at the end. And I encouraged Michael to do that. And I had this Super 8 camera that I fool around and shoot with all the time. And I told Michael, like, we should shoot some 16 and Super 8. And, uh, you know, and it'll look like home movies type stuff, you know, like independent style. And Michael got really into that. And so he let me shoot with my Super 8 camera. And then he shot my Super 8 camera. And then Buena Vista was calling me going, do you have the Super 8 footage from the thing when they wanted to cut it at the end? And Michael let me operate a couple of shots with 35 mil handheld. And we improvised a bunch of stuff. And we just had fun that day. It was uh, one of the last days we were in L.A. It was an exterior and it worked as a kind of farewell to everyone in the movie, too, because, you know, everyone in the cast was around for the wedding, except obviously Bruce and, and, uh, and Owen. But, you know, it was like all the people were there in these sort of funny outfits, and we all sort of joked around and had a good time. And the thing ended in a, a cake fight, which is in one of the shots, and, you know, me throwing cake on Buscemi and Steve throwing it on Bear and Big Mike Duncan and... And then we all grabbed the cake and grabbed Michael, who was shooting with my Super 8, and just covered him with the, the rest of the wedding cake, which is a particularly satisfying moment for all involved. And uh, it was a nice kind of uh, farewell to the movie, and it was fun. I think it worked. I like the idea of having home movie-style things. There's a family connection with Aerosmith, and the way we entered into this is Michael one day called me up, and we were in the post-production process, and it was about three or four months before releasing the movie, and he said, I just read in the paper that, that Godzilla's having a soundtrack. How come we don't have a soundtrack? And I said, well, right now we only have a few places where we're using really existing tunes, and one of the tunes we were using was an Aerosmith tune, Come Together. And... I called up Kathy Nelson, who's the head of music at Disney, and said, Kathy, what are our chances of putting together a soundtrack? And she said, Jerry, you're nuts. You know, we can't do this. This is crazy. It's the last minute. And I said, we always do things at the last minute. And she laughed, and, and she said, well, let me think about it. And the next thing that came over was a song by Diane Warren that I liked, and, and my, we played it for Michael, and Michael liked the song. And we said, well, now, how can we get an artist for the song? All we have is a song. And we all came up with the idea of, of Aerosmith doing a song. And Michael and I, one Sunday, invited them to, to the editing room where we, we were still editing the movie. And in walks the entire band with their wives or girlfriends. And they sat down. We put them in this tiny little room. And we just started showing them sequences. And at the end, we raised the lights. And there's Steven Tyler. He's got tears in his eyes. And the whole group had, had tears. And, and we knew we had them. And three days later, they were in the studio recording uh, that Diane Warren song. And this is definitely not 2,700 people that worked on the movie. You know, one thing I must say about Armageddon, there were so many places where this movie could have been in a total disaster, a total clusterfuck. 
with this many people, this big of a circus, and I'm telling you, it was the smoothest shoot I've ever been on. It was a really, really well-oiled machine, and a lot of the same crew members I worked with on The Rock, and I think it's a very important thing to have a vibe at the very beginning and, and surround yourself with the team of people that are there because they love it, and it's, it's not a job, but it's a career, and there's a big difference. Because I think there's laziness in Hollywood, and uh, I really pride myself in, in assembling a team. Because you're only as good as your team, but assembling a team that really, you know, makes it their life passion. It certainly helps to have a, a good visual idea of what you want the film to look like. But that's really what you're supposed to show up with as a director. I think. I think Michael does have a really good visual sense of uh, of what he you know wanted out of the film. There were a lot of things that came up that. You know, different shots that I think we came up with on the set just based on standing on the set and going, wow, this is this is really a lot more interesting than I could have imagined it when it was just a little sketch on a piece of paper. Michael Bay's a great director. One of the reasons I wanted to do this was to learn about large-scale, big-budget filmmaking and what you get for that and the kinds of shots you can get. I mean, we used every kind of crane and camera rig imaginable, all these stunts, how to explosions, green screen, CGI. I learned an enormous amount from working on this movie, and it was really a great experience in that regard. I really feel much better equipped to go in now and direct a movie having seen how Michael did this and the way, you know, this is not necessarily the kind of movie that I would pick to start with directing, but the lessons that I took from this in terms of, you know, how uh, to make something look visually interesting are invaluable, you know what I mean? There were certain circumstances where we'd just be walking around shooting like I would on any other movie, and yet when I see the way Michael made it look, it always looks grander and more spectacular in his movie than it would have in another movie. And that's something that's not easy to do, you know? And um, he's just really good at shooting things in a way so that there's a kind of majesty to them, you know? It's like old movies where it was larger than life, more magical than the real world, more kind of glamorous and spectacular. You know, some of that stuff takes money to do, and some of that stuff, it just takes uh, a talent for this medium. God bless America.